maybe low paid. I mean, at times interns earn a little bit of money. You make um, a little money or maybe a, a school credit or there something. There you go. Maybe yeah. a credit for a class. Um, in Wall Street, a little bit different as this competition for talent. Um, remember, Wall Street's a different animal, operates under a different sets of rule or set of rules and, and circumstances. Um, interns at Wall Street are averaging about $16,000 per month. <laughs> per month? Yeah, I've got an application in the mail. I've got a summer and a semester at Walford, you know, a private South Carolina college. Um, Wow. (laughs) And I actually had a chance to play a little football. So, you know, I I multitasked when I was at at Walford. So, yeah, I will be applying for an internship on Wall Street. Um, Intern pay has risen 37.2% since the pandemic began. We're talking about the uh, income inequality. And, you know, I was thinking about the debate. And I've really tried to pour some effort into this debate because I want my role and responsibility in the 7th Congressional um, debate, uh, Republican primary debate, uh, what, two weeks from tomorrow? Mm-hmm. I want that role to be like the, the baseball umpire. And, um, and my involvement in politics has never been like the baseball umpire. I mean, you've got to express yourself. You've got to make a name for yourself. You've got to leave a, kind of an imprint in people's mind about, hey, remember that guy that we saw at the parade? Remember that guy? Um, there's a, I don't know, Rev, there's a strategy that you employ in American politics. You've got to make an impact. You've got to leave an impression. Um, a moderator to me, why do we remember Candy Crowley, the big girl from CNN? Because she basically inserted herself into into the the going zone of the debate. Didn't let Obama and Romney kind of hash it out. She basically said, no, Romney, you're wrong. Uh, we found out later she was wrong, but, um, but I've always felt my job is to be invisible in some of these debates. And I think a, um, an opportunity for someone to go to Congress uh, would, would force me more so to be serious about, not that I've ever not been serious, but um, to be even more serious about, uh, you know, what role and responsibility I have as a moderator. 843-661-0937 is our number. Um, so so you're, you're studying, well, I mean, you're doing your homework. And, 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 and the point I'm trying to get to... The, you know, I never imagined in a million years that the issue income inequality would be addressed at a Republican debate, but it must. I mean, it really and truly, the Republicans have to grapple as a as a conservative or a libertarian. The heavy hand of government is something you've always been concerned about, suspicious of, um, you know, opposing. You've got you, we, we got to accept the reality that we have a conundrum. And the conundrum is a smaller and smaller and smaller percentage of Americans are controlling a larger and larger and larger percentage of our nation's wealth. And both political parties, now one political party says socialism. You know, that's the key. Let's, um, let's allow the government to run everything, state-run economy and uh, government control of the means of production. I'm not there. I mean, I'm nowhere near there. But I do think we need policymakers that understand um, this never ends well. I mean, h- human history is full of examples where, you know, um, a society becomes somewhat aristocratic and upper crust. Out of that comes a, a very small percentage of uh, people of whatever nation, and they control such a high percentage of that nation's wealth. It doesn't end well. Republicans, and I said this five or six or seven, maybe even eight years ago over the air, that uh, Republicans will have to at some point in time deal with income inequality. I mean, the, the Democrats you have, have told you about socialism it. is the answer. Socialism is the only answer. Socialism makes everybody poor. Uh, may, maybe that's the objective. 
Um, they're, you know, the, the oligarchs would be wealthy in a socialist society. Russia would be, I mean, they're not, they're not trying to confiscate the hundred million dollar yachts of the, uh, the Russian working class or the Russian entrepreneur. It's the oligarchs who have gained such favor with the communist government. And in a weird way, I think Jeff and I had this debate a couple of weeks ago. That's where we've ended up. I mean, we don't say American oligarchs. I've heard Tucker say that a time or two, you know, the American oligarchs. And I'll try to um, walk through, but yeah, my, I've got to figure out a way to frame a question to each candidate in the debate next uh, two weeks from tomorrow about income inequality. What, what is a conservative or a Republican's responsibility um, to addressing some of the concerns or the conundrum is a better word of income inequality when such a few percentage of Americans own and control such a large percentage of uh, of the American wealth. 843-661-0937. Let's go to the phone. Here is Breeze. Good morning, Breeze. Hey, guys. Oh, you know what, kid? I mean, yeah, no, I, I, I dig what you're talking about there. Don't get me wrong. But um, back on the subject I was talking about yesterday, we had a drive-by shooting in Charleston yesterday, too. And you look and you look at what happened during the, um, the COVID scam, where they were, where they wish they used uh, to throw an election. Where was all the violence occurring? Let's just use South Carolina. Where was the violence occurring in Democrat-controlled cities? I don't think they hit Florence because they knew they had a sheriff's department that would do something. But what are we going to do about these Democrat-controlled cities that are allowing? this type of violence, and they are because they are hamstringing the police and then they're letting these people go for shooting these people. I mean, I mean, listen, I, I get letting a guy go with a bag of pot. Okay, he, you know, he has no, if he has no violence, no, no violence, called violence on his record, he's just a guy dancing with a bag of pot. But when you're meeting at malls and having shootouts like OK Corral, or you're driving down called King Street in Charleston and you're shooting out the window at people, man, that's not the kind of thing, okay, listen, buddy, do, do me a favor, don't shoot anybody for a while and I'll let you and I'll let you let you get out on bond. I mean that's that's ludicrous. And it makes me wonder if George Soros type if, if they if they've gotten here too. You know what I mean? They're already in LA. They're already in Chicago. They're already in Seattle. But are they in Florida, South Carolina? Are they in Charleston? Are they in Columbia? You know, our, our big Democrat, you know, now Florida may not be as big as those, but, you know, the Democrat strongholds, and they got these woke prosecutors in there, and I don't know the answer. But I do know this. I, I find it unbelievable that, you know, you have a shootout at a mall, and, and, and they let and they let some of the people involved that were shooting guns back and forth, but let them go. I mean, what are our? We supposedly have a red state. You know, this isn't this this isn't California, which is a blue state. This is South Carolina. What are our Republican daggone um, state and federal and federal daggone um, elected officials? What are they doing? And what are, you know, the daggone stop this? Because it's obvious the city doesn't give a crap or they'd be doing something about it. And if the Republicans aren't doing anything about it, then I guess they're okay with it. That's what I keep saying. If the Republicans aren't going to stop what's going on, then aren't they as complicit as the Democrats? 
So how about let's let's see some action here instead of some words. Thank you, Breeze. Appreciate that. You know, I read an article in Fox News yesterday. The number of African American males that have been killed by fellow African American males is the highest it's ever been in American history. Never before. I think the average is six or seven thousand annually. African American males die at the hands of other African-American males. I mean, we get white racism and, you know, police violence and all these other sorts of, uh, of narratives that are espoused and, and promoted and advocated as being true. It's just not true. I mean, it's simply not true. I'll try to find the article here in the next break. But, um, you know, I was thinking about what, what do you do? What are the answers? Um, for many, 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 many years, Republicans and Democrats believed that we have too many people incarcerated. You know, drug offenses, minor offenses and drugs. I mean, I've told the story about someone who wrote bad checks being in jail in Florence County for 311 days. And and that narrative was what forced or, or led, led uh, the political body to create this legislation called Senate's leniency. I mean, I, it's very generic. I mean, it's different in Michigan than it is in, in Arizona. It's different in South Carolina than it is in, in Wyoming. But, but Senate's leniency. What was kind of the terminology or the political speak that led down this road? Um, you know, it's interesting. Breeze is talking about the events this weekend in Columbia. Um, there are there are two people charged. One was let out with a twenty five thousand dollar bond. Um, the other, um, I think they they found this guy and he's not given bond yet. I don't know if he will or will not. Um, and then there's a third person there in pursuit of or trying to identify. They believe they know who he is. They're just trying to find out where he is and and how to arrest or apprehend this person. But you've got three people with guns, and from what I've gathered, none of those three got shot. You've got ten innocent people at the Gap and around the you know the Columbiana Mall in our state's capital, uh, a very red state in South Carolina. Ten people got shot. None of the three perpetrators of the crime. Uh, they believe it was some sort of gang conflict. So one gang member, I would imagine, I don't know this. But one gang member um, seeks retribution or revenge. They shoot at another gang member. They miss that they hit innocent bystanders, people trying to flee and get out of the out of the mall, as would be the smart thing. Time to run when the bullets start flying, as we say in good old Pamplico. Um, and so you've got three people. Um, as far we know, two have not been shot. We don't know about the third. We can't find him. Um, but but one of the people that was involved, one person carried a gun to a shopping center and discharged the gun at a shopping center. We have no idea how many people he shot or didn't shoot, what sort of severity of injury. For, I mean, I've gathered two or three are in critical condition, but this person was given a $25,000 bond and an ankle bracelet. How can that be? I mean, when do you stop uh, deserving to go home and sleep in your bed that night? I'm like Breeze. I understand a bag of weed. I mean, it's against the law. I get that. But should a person with a bag of weed be incarcerated uh, with some sort of simple possession? I mean, I don't think so. I mean, you're breaking the law. There has to be a penalty to breaking the law. But but someone who carries a firearm to a mall and then shoots the gun? Who was he aiming at? I don't have any idea. All I know is 10 people were shot the Saturday before Easter. And then one of the perpetrators is, is home. Um, the, the other defend it um and once again innocent pro- to proven guilty we lo- argue a lot about um you know due process under the law mm-hmm. so so yeah i mean they're innocent until proven guilty but in our in our in our state's capital 10 people were shot 
It appears to me the three individuals responsible for the shooting spree didn't get hit, and one was let out on a $25,000 bond and an ankle bracelet. The, the other defendant insisted he be released because his son um, had a, some sort of athletic event or school event. And he, I mean, is that where we've no. gotten? I mean, South Carolina's a pretty damn red state. And, I mean, we're having shootings and we're having – and it's not the shootings. It's what happens – I mean, I hear from law enforcement a lot because of my political past. I still have a lot of connections with law enforcement at the local level and state level. They have no idea what to do once they make these arrests, once they apprehend um, th- these ah, these accused criminals. Because I want to make sure we give due process here. These, these people accused of these crimes, they, they just feel helpless and are unbelievably frustrated with what sort of sentencing, the leniency of the sentencing uh, that comes down. Hey, um, Eben Brown is with us. Eben's in Miami. Eben is joining us this morning. Want to shift gears and go to the judge um, who overruled the Biden transportation mask mandate, but the Biden administration suggested yesterday via a release from DOJ, uh, I guess representing the CDC, that they are going to challenge the ruling that the judge made. Eben, um, I'm a bit confused. Can you help me? Uh, sure. <laughs> I can try anyway. Uh, the, uh, yeah, the, 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 uh, there had been a lawsuit over this mask mandate, and a judge at a, a federal court in Tampa, Florida, uh, ruled that the CDC was out of bounds in ordering people be masked on public transit. Uh, and so it is officially now, uh, if you will, overturned or, or nixed or whatever the word is going to be. Uh, and because of that, uh, the, the TSA is not enforcing it. And uh, you've seen the airlines uh, tell people you can take your masks off. You don't have to wear them. You can just uh, you, you, you have the option to, to wear it if you want, but you don't have to wear them. Uh, now it looks like the federal government will appeal this. Uh, and so they're, they'll, uh, which means they'll be appealing it through the 11th uh, Circuit Court of Appeals, which is in Atlanta. Uh, I suspect that they probably won't get very far with that. And uh, uh, if they lose that appeal, they can, they can, or or if they win that appeal, even I guess the case might even go to the Supreme Court after that. But uh, as of now, uh, you do not have to wear a mask um, uh, on a plane, on a train, uh, in a. Uh, you know, any kind of bus or whatnot. Uh, even Uber and Lyft uh, changed their policies uh, in, in accordance with this uh, ruling uh, pr- pretty quickly. So, yeah. So while the ruling is being challenged, the mass mandate does not go back into effect. Is that, is that the proper um, understanding? That, that is uh, correct. There okay. was no stay of the judge's ruling. There wasn't uh, uh, anything of that, uh, of that nature, yeah. Very interesting. Eben, thank you for your time. Have a great day, sir. You too. Take care. Yes, sir. We wanted to make sure we took advantage of that because yesterday the Justice Department did um, um, say that it will appeal this federal judge who is, um, I mean, we never know anything about it. Just talking about judges and sentencing a second ago. We know everything there is to know about this judge. We, um, uh, I heard liberal media yesterday. She's a 35-year-old female appointed by Donald Trump with very little experience on the bench. Um, and if you read her decision, it's obvious. She was a 35-year-old woman. Um, that's a little bit insulting, mm. but I heard uh, Gene Robinson say that, a 35-year-old female judge. Uh, we can't say those things. You know, the left can right. because they've got Twitter in their pocket. They've got Facebook in their but pocket. They will they, not be held into account. You would have enjoyed this conversation yesterday before we take our break. 
I was with a buddy of mine who's in the business of uh, of serving you food, and he and I were discussing uh, algorithms and moderation. Uh, you know, we're talking about Twitter and Elon Musk and Peter Thiel came up and a lot of these other guys. And it was a little bit like the write-off Seinfeld episode. You know, algorithms and moderations or, or moderators. And um, and he was saying, you know what they are? And I said, no, they do it. <laughs> I'm telling you, they do it, man. They, they, they moderate these things and they've got these algorithms. And he said, but do you understand it? I said, no, I don't begin to understand it. <laughs> but I'm telling you, my man, they're doing it. And he said, oh, I know they're doing it. But what exactly are they doing? I don't know. Do you? No, I don't know. You guys are playing out a Seinfeld episode with, right with, there. Without question. You know, the the, um, the write-offs. <laughs> right they do it, Jerry. Yep. I don't know what it is, but they do it. So, so when we talk about moderators and, and algorithms, I don't know. But trust me, folks, you, you, have, you early risers at 620 this morning, they're doing it. I'll assure you they're doing it, moderators. Um, you know, the, the point we were trying to make, and I think this is very interesting, and this kind of plays into some of Breeze's um, talking points. If, if we are a state governed, if we're a red state, how much of that redness is conservative ink? And I use that. I mean, that's kind of my phraseology. That's the way I look at uh, the traditional Republican authoritative um, agencies. And I'm talking about we've got a Republican governor and a Republican lieutenant governor. We've got a Republican House and a Republican Senate. We've got a Republican attorney general. Um, but, but, but by and large, that is rest and residue of conservative ink the traditional status quo Republican um, hierarchy, uh, the Peter Thiel, Elon. I mean, uh, Thiel's a Republican. I don't know what Musk is. I mean, M- Musk is kind of an uh, – well, Thiel's a bit of an island. But, but the conversation we were having was, and you and I have had this conversation over the air and off the air, how do we effectively integrate the, the, the Blake Masters in Arizona, the Peter Thiel who's funding J.D. Vance and Blake Masters, the Elon Musk who wants to take over Twitter, there's no doubt their synergies align. There's no doubt their ambitions are very helpful to what we want to see happen, but they're not a part of Conservative Inc. They're actually in competition with Conservative Inc. because they kind of want to see things done a little bit differently. So, um, so when we look at Trump and DeSantis, because those would be the um, – the politicians at the convergence of conservative ink and um, conservative ink and this newfangled element within the Republican Party, J.D. Vance, Dr. Oz. I mean, do you believe J.D. Vance is a conservative ink Republican? No. You think Dr. Oz is? Read about him. <laughs> Read about him. I mean, he's a celebrity. He's a popular guy. But Everybody where names like Mitt Romney and let's say Ted Cruz and Rand Paul and well, I mean Rom- Romney is here's here's what I'd say because um, they're if given the op- Republican ink if they're, given right. the opportunity to vote for Mitt Romney or Joe Manchin I'll ask our listeners that That's if given the opportunity um, because I'll tell you what would make more sense um, let's say in 2024 DeSantis takes a pass. Trump takes a pass. Biden doesn't run again. Hillary, well, I mean, she's gained a lot more weight. Um, and so, so, so you've got here's what here's a likely contest. You ready? Joe Manchin as a Republican, Mitt Romney as a Democrat. I mean that that would be. I mean, to me, Manchin's probably been more helpful to the way we see the world by stopping some of the liberal agenda than than Romney is. So so no, I think to to suggest or insinuate that Romney. Cruz, Paul, I think Cruz and Paul are very interesting Republicans. Mm -hmm. And I think Romney is just a guy who says, I don't like it. I've never liked it. It's my birthright. 
to be who I am. But when you talk about I'm George Romney's son. George Romney was governor of Michigan. Do you not know who I am? I think you, Liz you were, Cheney shares a similar um, kind of worldview. You use words like integrate to conservative ink. So I'm thinking, how do you talk about DeSantis, Trump, and then I bring up Cruz and Paul, but then there's Romney and yeah. Well, I mean, Cheney. They embody conservative ink. Right. They run around. But when you the, talk about integrating, well, I mean, well, how, how maybe, do those people okay, integrate? Let, let me rephrase that because when you said it, I'm like, I don't know if I want to say it though. Let's not integrate. Let, let's just do away with. Let's abolish from the planet conservative ink in its traditional and, and our historic format. Let's just do away with it. And let's, we, we've got a, what do I say a lot? Uh, Springsteen on Broadway. We've got this blank sheet of paper. Let's start over. Um, let, let's let Teal have a, a pen. Let's let Musk have a pen. Let's let, you know, J.D. Vance have a pen. Let's not give Mitt Romney a pen. Romney doesn't get to write a verse in Thunder Road. I mean, Romney, we're sorry, my man. We've entrusted a lot to you over the years as a Republican office holder and leader. No longer. I mean, Romney was one of these guys' sentence leniency. I mean, what Breeze was talking about earlier, Romney was one of the stalwarts of we, we've got to address why we've got so many people incarcerated. Here's what the Republican hierarchy has tried to do. It's trying to be very um, forgiving and compassionate. And, you know, I just, I, there's a place for that. But building a political party and creating an agenda is just not the place to do that. Take a break. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes. You know, it's interesting. A lot of the conversation over the past couple of days has included these, um, uh, these newfangled candidates in Senate races. And I mean, we're talking about Herschel Walker. We're talking about Dr. Oz. We're talking about, you know, J.D. Vance, celebrity candidates. The National Review had an article yesterday basically um, arguing that the media is trying to make a joke of these candidates because, you know, nobody knew J.D. Vance. He was kind of a never Trumper until he decides to run in Ohio as an America first candidate. But, but really and truly, his name and notoriety comes as a result of Hillbilly Elegy, the book he wrote, turned into a movie. He becomes somewhat of a celebrity. We know the story with Dr. Oz, Herschel Walker, a football legend in the state of Georgia. And uh, the Nash Review is arguing that the Republican voters shouldn't fall for that. They shouldn't fall for the celebrity candidate. Find out, you know, that there are other equally equipped. Dave McCormick. And in, uh, in Pennsylvania would be an example. McCormick is, I mean, he did exactly what you would expect him to do. He worked for Bush. He went to work at Goldman. He left Goldman, now running for a Senate seat in Pennsylvania. His wife worked for Bush. She still works at Goldman. And, and the National Review is still trying to convince me and you that they, McCormick's the guy we need to look at. And I think we're so appalled. I can't speak for the masses. Me personally, if you worked for Bush and worked at Goldman, I'd rather have Dr. Oz. I mean, I'll accept some of his weird tendencies and some of his um, out-of-the-box. And, and once we get to know this guy a little bit more, you'll say, damn, uh, I didn't know that about him. Because Oz is a very, I mean, he's a very educated, accomplished man. He's a cardiothoracic surgeon. He's a graduate of the Wharton School of Finance. I mean, he's a highly um, educated and... Became um, a successful TV star, yeah, well, right? And there's, you know, and, and when you ask Trump why he endorsed uh, behind the scenes... I mean, he'll argue that he advocates for America first, that he believes China's a preeminent threat. But, but at the end of the day, Trump believes if you can stay relevant on TV for 18 years, you can win an election. And, and you know, I, I'm not saying he's right or wrong, but, but the National Review, which is kind of the George Will um, way of thinking and uh, the William Buckley way of thinking, um, they're saying, no, you can't vote for Dr. Oz if you're a conservative ink. Well, I'm not a conservative ink guy. I, I'm appalled by conservative ink. In fact, McCormick, to me, represents exactly what Conservative Inc. has always been about. 
He serves at the pleasure of a president. He takes that resume, goes to Goldman. He gets a very lucrative opportunity because he kind of knows how Washington and Wall Street do deals. He leaves there to run for Senate as a conservative Republican. His wife uh, worked for Bush. She also, I'll ask you that, Rev. Um, you don't know as much about Oz as I do. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've told you, he's a uh, transcendental meditationist. Um, Didn't know that. He's um, he's kind of into this gender. I mean, he believes there's questions about gender identity. Um, uh, he just very out of the box, out of the mainstream when it comes to conservative think. Um, but he didn't work at Goldman. He didn't serve at the pleasure of uh, former President Bush. Who would you rather have? <laughs> at the surface, I mean, if you, you got candidate A, candidate B. You don't know who they are. Candidate um, A had an 18-year run on television. He's highly educated. Um, he's a smart man, but he's got a lot of different things about him that we find concerning. But you've got this other guy, obviously credentialed. He worked for a president, a, a Republican president, and then he went to work at Goldman. So he's a smart guy who's made some money. Um, who would you rather have? <laughs> uh, I, I, would take the, I would take Oz in this case or the TV guy. You know, TV guy A or whatever. But because he's not like the people you've right. historically voted he's for. He's a little bit anti, which is where, where I am right and now. And I think that's where the party is. I think if you give the voters in the Republican Party a chance to vote for a guy who worked for Bush, worked at Goldman, we would have normally taken you up on that. I mean, that's our yeah. guy. You know, yeah. he, he worked in government and he went to the private sector. Th- th- those are demerits now. I mean, if you worked at Goldman, I don't that's want to be part of you. If you work for Bush, I don't want any part of you. If you're a transcendental meditationist uh, with a name Dr. Oz, uh, and you're a Muslim, uh, the lesser of two evils. I'll take the celebrity. Let's go to the phone. Dale in Florence. Morning, Dale. Hey, guys. Real quick, I'm, I'm pretty sure that there's nothing on hiding uh, Hunter Biden's laptop about the Clintons. After all, he is still alive. Um, they, um, here's, here's my thing. You know, Dr. Ben Carson was the guy that got me really looking at non-traditional, non-lifetime candidates. And I liked what I saw there. And then President Trump came along. I liked what I saw there. And with these other guys that you're naming, you know, I've gotten to the point where my first inclination is if the guy is not a lifetime politician, then I'm already leaning towards him a little bit, at least until I find out a little bit more about him. But these Romneys and, and, and different, you know, I just, I'm tired of them. They, 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 they sit up there, and it don't matter what side of the aisle they're on. They don't do anything. They talk, talk, talk. Nothing gets done. And at least with these non-traditional candidates, these non-lifetime politicians, there's got to at least be a chance for something different because, We've already seen what the status quo provides, and it's miserable. Ken, I got a question. What, what do you think is the, 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 the over-under on a percentage of whether or not Trump and DeSantos and a few other people, Peter Till, they get together and they say, hammer out a strategy, the best possible way for, to, 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 to put the Republican Party back in the White House, or do they just go like a bull in a china shop? <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't really see President Trump sitting down with anybody and trying to figure out any strategy that doesn't put him on top. And I just don't know how well that's going to work out. You guys have a good day. Thank you, Dale. The problem with what Dale's talking about, it's not a problem, it's a reality. Um, Teal wants everything his way. 
He's a billionaire. Billionaires normally get what they want. Musk is a, a richer man than Teal. So, so to suggest or believe that we could get Teal, and Rev made an interesting point near the break. Um, Musk is, I mean, Musk has never invested in the Republican Party. Um, I mean, I think Elon Musk and Peter Thiel are both, it's almost like I, I used a comparison to Rev. They're almost like Jefferson and Adams. M- more than a political ideology, they believe in liberties and freedoms. I think they're both borderline anarchist. Now, it's easy to be a borderline anarchist when you got billions of dollars in the bank. I mean, you can be about anything you want to be when you're financially liberated and don't have to transact with anybody or don't have to transact with anybody under their terms and conditions. Now, Musk is finding out buying Twitter just because he has the money or can liquid, uh, get liquid and buy Twitter. He's finding out there, there are some obstacles that um, even the wealthiest man in the world has to overcome with some of the poison pills or the diluting of shares. We'll get into that as the show progresses. But, but I, you know, I, don't, I, I try to convince myself at times that we need an anti-Davos meeting. We need to invite Teal and Musk and and DeSantis and Trump and Rand Paul and, you know, um, I mean, the Rush Limbaugh would have been there. You know, I don't know if any of these other guys are credible enough to go. Uh, I'm certainly not. But, I mean, Limbaugh absolutely needed to be in the room when you kind of build this new uh, political operation. I don't want to even call it a political party. It's kind of a hodgepodge. It's a little bit like the All-Star game. You know, the shortstops wearing a St. Louis Cardinals jersey. The first baseman's wearing an Atlanta Braves jersey. Uh, the third baseman's wearing a, you know, a, I mean, you see where I'm headed. I mean, it, it, it's um, it's the best of the best. It's kind of the dream team. There would be a better analogy. It's Larry, Magic, and Michael, you know, and Shaq, and uh, yeah, Christian Leitner's on there, but he was the best college player. Um, but but every nobody's singing off the same sheet of music. Everybody believes their ballads are the best. And see, I, I would want Rand Paul there. I think I would want Ted Cruz there. Um, I but wouldn't, but wouldn't want Romney, wouldn't want Cheney, okay, and I wouldn't want Bill Crystal and those types of people. What either. are we trying to do when we get there? I mean, let's say, let's say that, that Romney yeah, shows where up is and, there and let's say Romney shows up and we say, well, you know, where, where's your membership card? You know, th- this is the, two, this is 2001 at Myrtle beach. Where's your membership card? Don't have one. We'll go home. I mean, go to Davos. They'll, they'll welcome you and embrace you at Davos. Um, that would be kind of an interesting exercise. If we have this meeting that this mystical, magical meeting somewhere, uh, the anti-Davos meeting, and we invite Elon Musk. Now, Musk is not one of us. I mean, M- Musk is a, is, is a very uh, socially liberal man. I mean, he's, he's not, you know, a big part of the Republican Party has been fundamental religion. Uh, religion, religious fundamentalism, I think, is the way they um, categorize it. I've heard Kahaley say, you know, amongst the religious, or excuse me, amongst the fundamental, no, the religious fundamentalist, um, you know, there, there's this mindset. Well, I mean, we Musk and Teal aren't that. I mean, they, you know, they're wealthy, wealthy people who are unbelievably bright and, and appear to be at times on our team. I mean, Musk is, excuse me, Teal's on our team fairly consistently. I mean, Teal has endorsed a former president. Teal has given a lot of his wealth to, to aid and assist these, but he's not doing it in the name of Conservative Inc. I mean, I think Teal's is um, offended by Conservative Inc., as anybody listening to my voice is, um, if you ask Teal, hey, you got to write another $10 million check. Do you give it to uh, McCormick of Pennsylvania because he worked for Bush? He worked at Goldman. Or do you give it to Dr. Oz? We know who gets that money. I mean, Oz gets the money. And I think these guys are, um, they're kind of chaos candidates. Um, how chaotic can we make it? And and the last thing the Republican world order likes is is chaos. I've always felt that's what Trump did. Um, whether Trump, you know, knew how advantageous it was or not, 
him bringing chaos, him not following a script. So there's a little bit of me, of me that says the meeting would be a letdown. I mean, if you've got Musk, Teal, Trump, DeSantis, Rand Paul, Ted Cruz, um, the late Rush Limbaugh, I, mean, I know we can't do that, but I'm just including him because he was such a, uh, a prominent figure, you know, in the Republican Party. Um, and I think Rush saw this coming. I mean, I think if Limbaugh were here today, um, Limbaugh would say, let's, let's zig and not zag. I mean, if we've got to kick somebody out of the club, let's kick Romney out of the club. And this is probably the only time in my political life that I look at something other than politics is the art of addition. I mean, the person with the most votes, the person with the most support. Um, you know, if, if, um, if Romney wants to be on the team, the tent should be big enough to allow Romney on the team. But at some point in time, um, these guys are detrimental to where the team is trying to head. In other words, they're more of an impediment. They're the offensive lineman that jumps off sides every play. Sooner or later, you got to put another offensive lineman because this guy just ain't good for the team. Despite him being a teammate, Despite him having the same color jersey, this guy's hurting his team. And I think Romney's got to a point now, I think Liz Cheney's got to a point now where they're both just simply hurting the, the team. And I think their reasoning is very childish. It's very juvenile. They just don't like it. I mean, Liz Cheney's father, you know, was such a prominent figure in Republican lore. Mitt Romney's father and Mitt Romney himself consider themselves to be so influential, so important, so... um so consequential in where the party goes. And I just think the, you know, the Dales of the world, the general public that call themselves Republicans. Uh, I think if Romney knew what the, the rank and file Republican voter thought of him, he'd find something else to do, but he's so full of himself. He's just not going to ever allow himself to be aware of that reality. Take a break back in a minute. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. The better question to ask about the first hour of our show is, um, and then these are some of the generic conversations, some of the um, spontaneous conversations that we have, and they're normally the best. You know, why am I trying to tell you who needs to be in the room? Why don't you tell me? What Republican office holder or thought leader do you pay attention to? I mean, who out there, and I'm talking about our audience, I mean, who out there do you pay attention to? Is it Tucker Carlson? I mean, it can't be Limbaugh any longer. We knew how much influence he had. I mean, there is no doubt about it. Um, I think Philip Lowe said Friday, you know, that cost us a bit. I mean, it really did. When you think about the effect or impact Limbaugh had, the way he was able to articulate the beliefs and the, the standings and the, uh, I don't know, he was just a, good, a real good communicator. I mean, he had the ability to communicate his points, get his points across in a very understandable and relatable way. I mean, that's the, the job of a communicator. So I know that a lot of you, paid attention to what Limbaugh said. Um, who do you listen to now? I mean, is it Tucker? Is it DeSantis? Is it Trump? Is it Rand Paul? I mean, there are a handful of people that I pay attention to. Um, I mean, I think I understand that Tucker has a job to do. Tucker's job is to inform uh, of the relevant issues, but it's also to entertain. And he's a very entertaining personality on television. There was a day Bill O'Reilly didn't consider himself a Republican thought leader, but a lot of others did. So the better question is not who I think need to be in the anti-Davos meeting, but who do you pay attention to? Who moves the meter in your world when it comes to, um, wow, I like that guy, or I like that lady, and I like what they had to say. Um, some of the pronouncements they made are very much in line with my worldview and my hopes of where 
uh, the grand old party goes. Um, I mean, the Democrats have their issues, but I don't think they have. And we talk about fault lines within a party and divergences within a party. And I do believe that Musk and Teal, despite their, well, I mean, Teal would be different because once again, he's invested in the Republican Party. Musk has never demonstrated a willingness. I don't know his contributions. I mean, I don't know if he's ever given money to candidates or not. I would imagine as the owner or the, the founder of Tesla and SpaceX, he's had to be political because those are very political businesses, space exploration. I mean, a lot of Musk's budget is carved out of NASA's budget at SpaceX. We know the profit center of Tesla has historically been the remarketing of green energy credits. So you know the guy has to understand at a pretty deep level um, the nature of American politics. Who do you listen to? When they say things, who matters to you? 843-661-0937. Back in a minute. So I want to take you back to Monday. Monday's the day that I complained about my $18 country fried steak turned into a $24 country fried steak. That's first world problems. I mean, I'm at Pauly's Island, and uh, we go to this place for brunch on Saturdays or Sundays, and the country fried steak entree is 18 bucks, turns into 24 bucks. <laughs> the weird so, thing is I almost had a little sympathy for you when uh, you told the story. But, but in all honesty, I mean, I get it. I understand it. I'm not angry with the restaurant owner. I understand supply chain issues. I understand inflation. I see what has happened. You know, th- there's a theory out there. If you print, um, you know, a few trillion bucks that you don't have and you just pass out wads of it, is everybody richer or do you dilute the value of the wealth they did have? Um, I think we're finding the hard way what the answer to that question is. And it's really front and center in a lot of people's mind. I mean, if you're making a million bucks a year, it doesn't matter. I mean, it really doesn't. I mean, you're probably conscientious of it. You probably are bothered by it, but it doesn't change your behavior. I mean, it just doesn't. If you're in the, uh, if you're in the middle, you're really beginning to wonder um, what lies ahead and what sort of um, changes are you going to make. Those who go out to eat a couple of times a week will probably go out to eat one time a week. You think you're saving a lot of money by going to the grocery store. You're actually not. Um, the cost of groceries, it, it's unbelievable. It's absurd now. I mean, it, it is really, um, and it hits people in the wallet, and people are having to address and adjust that. So I'm having a conversation yesterday, uh, once again, with a buddy of mine who's in the restaurant business, and I'm complaining about the $18 country fried steak that turns into $24, and he kind of walks me through. What, what they're dealing with today. I've talked to people in manufacturing about some of the issues they're dealing with today. Um, I'll give you an example. There's a, different in, there's a difference in lettuce. I, I know this because I'm somewhat of a, um, I'm a passive owner in a, in a restaurant. Very, 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 very passive um, ownership. And I don't have any hand in running it at all. Um, the only reason that uh, you would know it is I get bothered by, not bothered, I get called by friends who say, hey, um, is there any way you can help me get fit in, you know, tonight or, or tomorrow <laughs> night? And, you know, I like to try and help people. So I always try to do that uh, the best I can. But anyway, I want to go back to this, um, the supply chain and, and transportation. And, you know, if you really want to play this all the way out to the extreme, I, I stick with me and I, and I'll help you do it. So, so there's two kinds of lettuce. There's the lettuce straight off the farm, uh, that has the, uh, the couple of layers you just kind of pull off. That lettuce is cheaper than what we call choice lettuce. Choice lettuce has already had um, the unusable, the, the unsanitary um, couple of layers of lettuce on the outside. Today, in, in the food industry, choice lettuce is cheaper 
than what we'd call the second lettuce. That's not the official um, designation, but the second lettuce is the lettuce that looks a bit disheveled. You got to, you know, what do you just kind of break off a couple of rows and um, sure. not rows, a couple of um, rounds, I guess, a couple of layers. Um, why is choice lettuce less expensive today? Let me tell you, when you stack it, when you box it, crate it, and stack it, you can get about two more layers of choice lettuce in a, in a refrigerated tractor trailer. So shipping. The shipping costs. Wow. No question about it. So when you go to the grocery store and you see, you know, the, the second lettuce, more expensive than the choice lettuce, you think the grocery store owners made a mistake, that there's something wrong here. No, that's where we are. Grocery stores, restaurants, manufacturing, all these businesses are having to really get sophisticated and how understanding what the inputs are. Um, I think I know what I have in that truck bed, but damn, I mean, I'm not making any money. I built as many truck beds last year. I'm using my former life. I built as many truck beds last month as I did the previous month, but I didn't make any money. It's obvious I've not done a good job tracking, uh, you know, controlling and accounting for inflation. And that's where business is today. Now, now if I want to play this all the way out to the extreme, and I will for a second. We talked a minute ago about, uh, well, an hour ago. Uh, seems like a minute because we're having such fun here. Mm-hmm. We talked about an hour ago um, the pay for interns at Wall Street, $16,000 a month, or what some of the uh, interns are making. Uh, they're, they're, they're scouring for talent. And some of the most talented want to go where they can be uh, highest compensated. So if you want to intern at Community Broadcasters, you may get a college credit or two, but it's doubtful you get a paycheck. I mean, we're doing this. Uh, and we've done this. I mean, we had a good yeah. friend of mine's daughter come and intern with us last summer, did a spectacular job, um, but there's just not a lot of opportunity to be paid. Internships are kind of the price you pay. And I think she got some credit That's right. at, at the University of South Carolina, and it kind of served all of us well. Uh, but interns in, uh, in Wall Street are getting 16 grand a month in some cases because they're trying to create some loyalty. Uh, Goldman would pay an intern 16 grand who's at the Wharton School of Finance hoping and anticipating for them to come back. They've got some goodwill with that person. But if I want to play this all the way out to the end, and it's pretty easy to do this, I could argue that COVID was the instrument of which we even more consolidated the business world. In other words, the how many times have I said the public sector has declared war on the private sector? And you look at inflation. Um, if you're at Home Depot or Lowe's, I mean, yeah, inflation's real. Inflation is bothersome. Inflation is burdensome. But it's not something that threatens to close your business down. If you're a mom-and-pop lumberyard or a mom-and-pop restaurant or a mom-and-pop manufacturing, that the inflation bubble can destroy you. I mean, if you're a, an average American household, the inflation bubble can fundamentally change the way you're living your life. It's not, I mean, it's going to change the bottom line at Home Depot and Lowe's. It's going to change the bottom line at some of the national chain restaurants. So let's use McDonald's or, or Chick-fil-A as an example. But it's not going to threaten to close your doors because you're well healed. I mean, you've got a lot of money. You've um, uh, probably got a lot of money in reserves. you got, you know, credit line after credit line. So you're not fearing for your very existence because of the inflation bubble. In fact, the inflation bubble could end up being a benefit to you if it um, thins the herd. If some of these local restaurants don't make it, if, if they're not sophisticated enough to properly account for you know, choice lettuce or the second um, lettuce. And that's just kind of bizarre to me that you can buy second lettuce, or you, you, you can buy choice lettuce today less expensive than you can uh, what we call second lettuce. 
because you can get so many heads of choice lettuce in a tractor trailer than you can um because one's just bigger than the other you know one's the size of a softball the other size of a basketball and uh, you can get more softballs in a tractor trailer than you can uh, and then you got to count for you know the per head shipping cost on lettuce and and, and you know when, when you look at covid because we talked about this a second ago and, and let's say let's for argument's sake that we Let's look at some numbers. Let's think about some numbers here for a second. Um, $33 trillion in debt. Um, we've added about $9 trillion to the GDP. Over the over the years we've amassed, accumulated $33 trillion in debt, we've added about $9 trillion to our GDP. So we're not getting any bang for our buck. I mean, the average consumer, the average worker, the average laborer is not benefiting from the federal debt. Who benefits from the debt? I mean, we tried to articulate and argue the points. Um, the Fed, the activist Fed, has basically put wind in the sails of the capital markets. Wall Street has benefited, uh, I mean, just tremendously disproportional to, to the way we, the majority of Americans, have. Um, and, and, and it's real hard to get your head around some of these numbers. I'll do this. We talked about Elon Musk a second ago. Um, how do you become as wealthy as Elon Musk? Easy. You get paid a million dollars every single day for the next 750 years. <laughs> okay. I mean, we, we, we don't understand, Rev. We don't comprehend how big these numbers are. Wow. I mean, you, somebody pays you a million dollars a day for the next 750 years, and you've got as much money as Elon Musk has. Now, now granted, it's not liquidity. I mean, he's got investments in Tesla and SpaceX, and if the market sold off and his investments were worth half, he'd be worth a hundred and something billion dollars instead of two hundred and something billion dollars. But but how do we get our hands on thirty-three trillion that we've added in total debt since two thousand ten? I mean, stick with me for a second. Sixty um, percent increase in debt over the last decade. The population in America has risen by seven percent. So our debt to population, this matters because, you know, a bigger country with more people is going to power a larger economy and GDP grows as a result of that. So we've um, we got $33 trillion in debt. And, and I'm talking about some of the unfunded liabilities. I mean, there, there, there's some things we've done very creatively within the Fed's balance sheet. Um, $30 trillion is not the real number. $30 trillion is the number we've obligated ourselves to exclusive of um, future Social Security benefits, future Medicare benefits. The modeling is, I mean, you could honestly, it's disingenuous. I'm going to suggest that we're only $30 trillion in debt. We're probably somewhere near um, $80 or $90 trillion in debt by the time you look at some of the formulated realities of Medicare and Social Security. So if GDP, if, excuse me, if population rose by 7% and the national debt rose by 60%, who got the money? I mean, where is all the money? I mean, it's fiat currency is circulating out there somewhere. It goes back to my argument. You know, when you print excess cash, liquidity, and you pass out, you know, you give Rev a wad, you give Day, I mean, a Mike a wad, you give me a wad. Um, are we richer? Or do we have more money that has been diluted? I mean, in economic, you call it inflation. I think in Walmart, I mean, excuse me, in Wall, in Wall Street vernacular, it'd be um, dilution. I mean, there are different terminologies and language that these sectors of the economy speak. Um, are, are we 60% off better today than we were 10 years ago? Is the economy 60? We got 60% more liquidity out there. How many of you feel like that, that your flight in life or your plight in life 
is 60% better than it was. Has GDP gone up by 60%? No. Uh, is the, um, has the metrics of our economy 60% better? Are we 60% more productive? Um, has the purchasing power of our wages gone up 60%? Can we buy 60% more stuff with a day's earnings? Um, I think it's fair to say no to all those questions. Um, but we've added all this debt, and all we've done is tread water. We're barely keeping our heads above water. Talk to a small businessman or woman. I mean, they'll tell you they've never, ever been as challenged as they are today. Really good business friends of mine are scratching their heads in ways I've never seen these really good business friends. Now, forget the school district and tax increases. I mean, we'll get to that on another day. I'm simply talking about the debt equation that has led to rampant hyperinflation and the business community trying to address and deal and work through these hyperinflation issues, because once again, I used to pay $18 for a country fried steak. Now you're asking to me pay $24. Really and truly, the restaurant should have raised the price to $30. But you know what they're afraid of? Ken ain't coming at $30. I mean, he may come at $24. He may not, but he's not coming at $30. So they're probably making very little profit on the, um, on the food they're serving because of rampant inflation. So... Um, you got a hundred thousand dollars in debt for every of the each one of the three hundred thirty million Americans. I mean, let's use thirty-three million as a number. Um, that's the number they're using here in this Wall Street Journal article. So, um, you got thirty-three trillion in debt. That's um, that's about a hundred thousand. That's exactly a hundred thousand dollars of debt per each of the three hundred and thirty million Americans. That includes babies going to daycare. That includes seniors in nursing home. Everybody's on the hook in America. For $100,000, do we feel like we're living a life where we owe, as a percentage of federal debt, a hundred grand? Of course not. Um, here's where the money's gone. You ready? And here's where I get real conspiracy theorists, because I think in matters relating to this, the only conspiracy theory is to believe there is no conspiracy. <laughs> the, re- the wealthiest 400 Americans have seen their wealth skyrocket um, from roughly 6% of GDP a decade ago to about uh, 16% today. So um, as we've printed money, added liquidity, created debt, you've not benefited. Maybe you think you have because somebody sent you a check for two grand. You know, um, maybe the child credit income tax, uh, the child income tax credit, the child tax credit helped you a little bit on your, but I mean, your, your, your savings, your benefit pales to what the, the wealthiest Americans have uh, accumulated. So when we began in 2010 down this road, the, the GDP, the, excuse me, the, uh, the percentage of GDP by the wealthiest 400 Americans was 8%. Now it's, um, it's 16%. So that's doubled, um, from, I want to get the numbers right here. Well, it's about $24 trillion of wealth that the richest um, 400 people in America own. Um, so you've got the other, let, let's say the, um, the bottom 50%. That's about 65 million households. So the 65 million households own about one half of 1% of the $40 trillion U.S. stock market. Stick with me for a second. Now, this is a staggering statistic. The, the bottom 50% of wage earners, earn, or excuse me, own about one half 
of 1% of all the stock market um, valuation in America today. So when, we, when we've taken this, um, this debt, this fiat currency, this liquidity that has been created out of thin air, it's ended up somewhere. It damn sure has. How did it get there? How did it flow wherever it well, started? I mean, it's, the, it's, it's the investment class. Through and to the ultra wealthy. Let me think about it, Rev. If you are, um, if you are a zero, let's say the Fed, the, the activist Fed has a zero percent interest rate, and you have money, and you're looking for dividend, you're looking for return, you're looking for yield. There is no place to go but the stock market. So it warps, it distorts supply and demand. All of a sudden, everybody's trying to invest in the stock market. Well, if you've got you know 100 buyers of Exxon stock instead of 50 buyers of Exxon stock, because in traditional finance world. Let's say the interest rates are 6%, 7%, and a money market or CD's paying 6 or 7%. About half the money in the stock market is not in the stock market. It's probably in some you know, um, more, more predictable and stable investment like a money market, like a, like a CD. It's economics 101. When you distort supply and demand, and that's what the activist Fed is doing by supplying the economy with so much liquidity. I've said it before. We live in a country today. That, that appropriates money, the government appropriates money. I don't know how we don't call ourselves a banana republic. We live in a country today that appropriates money via Congress. Congress appropriates spending, whether it's education, whether it's infrastructure, whether it's Medicare, Social Security. It obligates when it appropriates X number of dollars. Now, we don't budget much anymore because we're ashamed to do that. I mean, nobody wants to sit down and, and be as embarrassed as Congress would be. Uh, a lot of this is CR, continuing resolutions and... Um, anyway, you, so, so imagine this, imagine the most powerful country in the world. You, you, you basically appropriate money, you approve spending, you don't have the money. So you issue debt. The fed buys the debt with money. They don't have, they create the, the digital currency, the fiat currency out of thin air. Nobody's got a print press in the basement working overtime. I mean, that's not the way this works, but they, they out of thin air, create money to buy the debt. The government just, uh, created the government doesn't have the money, but they create the debt. The Fed doesn't have the money, but they buy the debt. I mean, how does that work? How do we sustain that? I mean, uh, and a head of lettuce and, and, a, and a country fried steak are the, the kind of the rest and residue. What do they say about crap? It runs downhill. I mean, it always ends up in the lap of the American working class. That's why America first is so central to all of this. And I'm tired of these modern monetary theorists and some of these Keynesian economists trying to argue that, well, when it's more complicated. Okay, it's more complicated than that. But here's what's not complicated. It's not complicated at all. If you take an hour of your time and have an IQ of over 80, I mean, I think I qualify there. I think I've got an IQ. It isn't much over, but it's a little bit better than 80. And I have an hour every now and then to try to understand these things. The money that has been created via federal debt from 2010 has ended up at about one half of 1% of America's wealthiest people. Um, I read something this morning that uh, Blackstone is going to buy a company called uh, American Campus Communities for $12.8 billion. Um, Blackstone, a huge private equity firm, um, is going to buy a company that basically um, built uh, and developed student housing around the U.S., we're forgiving student debt. I don't know if you saw this yesterday or not, but there's some discretion the president has about forgiving student debt. Um, it's just interesting to me as part of the um, requirement to forgive your student debt. Uh, if you work in the public sector, they call that public service. You get paid for public service, uh, but it's called public service. Uh, to me, service is when you don't get paid. 
I mean, if you're doing something as a, as a servant's heart, you're not looking for a paycheck. Public sector employees are not public service. I mean, it's just simply not. I'm sorry. I love you to death. I hope if I ever need a, a, an ambulance or a fire department, you guys will come and, and help and take care of me. But you're not in the public service business. It's your job to do what it is you're doing, just as it's uh, a restaurant owner's job to feed you and a truck body manufacturer's job uh, to build truck beds. It's your job. And I'm just tired of hearing it. And, and some of the uh, some of the stipulations for student debt forgiveness was if you work in the private sector, tough stuff. But if you work in the public sector, you're prioritized, and you know because once again, uh, you you must be doing that with a with a servant's heart. But Blackstone is a huge private equity firm, and they're buying at twelve point eight billion dollars um, this student housing company called American Campus Communities, and that just further illustrates exactly what I'm saying. These big companies, these huge monstrosities, are flush with cash. And if I want to go way down this road, Mike, stick with me for a second. I know we're getting behind. But if I want to really go down the conspiracy theorist road, I would argue that the government is being lobbied by, by all of these major, major American corporations in hopes and anticipation of running the small businesses out of business. I mean, Home Depot doesn't hate regulation. Walmart doesn't hate regulation. Target doesn't hate regulation. They can afford regulation. What Target wants to see happen is, is mom and pop companies that don't have the sort of margins, that don't have the, the sort of access to capital, they want to see them go by the wayside. And I believe this. I think there's a dirty deal that the government's made with big business. The more little businesses we can put under, the better off big business will be. That's why big business makes major contributions to both political parties. Why would Walmart be a major contributor to Donald Trump and Nancy Pelosi to make sure they get what they want. And when you look at the pandemic spending and you look at the, the liquidity that was injected into the market and where it appears the liquidity has ended up, it's ended up exactly where the government wanted it to end it up. The rich got richer. Take a break. Back in a minute. 843 The point I'm trying to make, and we'll go to the phone here, the point I'm making, and I'm, I'm as sure as I am sitting behind this microphone that I'm right, the majority of the COVID relief money ended up in the hands of the wealthiest companies, the wealthiest people in the world, America in our case, and the government. 8.3, excuse me, $8.9 billion made their way in COVID relief money to South Carolina. Of the $8.9 billion, $6.3 billion went to the public sector. We've got to invert that. I mean, we've got to be more um, sympathetic and understanding of business. We just aren't. Um, why, did, why was Walmart allowed to stay open, but local restaurants had to close? I mean, is a local restaurant, is a local diner that can seat 30 or 40 people uh, a, a, a bit, um, more dangerous than, than a super center where everybody and their brothers fighting for the last loaf of bread. That's the point I'm trying to make. And, and once again, this is playing the conspiracy theory out to the end that there, there is a dirty deal. I'm not saying there is, but if you play the conspiracy theory out to the end, the dirty deal is um, Walmart lobbies Democrats, Walmart lobbies um, Republicans, um, Home Depot, Lowe's, lobby Democrats, lobby Republicans. Do you think they're lobbying to make sure mom and pop are able to compete in the marketplace, or do you think they're lobbying for a larger market share? 
I mean, they're lobbying for a larger market share. And a lot of the way they get a larger market share is to consolidate. The way you consolidate is, is to, you know, ba basically drive somebody out of business. And that's what's happening. That's why the number of startups is at an all-time low. That's why the, 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 the sentiments of small business owners is as bad as it's ever been. I mean, I, you know, I bump into these people a lot. They know that, that I'm kind of a kindred spirit of them. I mean, they, they know my past of running in a family or working in a family business and running a family business. And when we um, cry on one another's shoulder, it's very relatable. And, and I've, I've never seen this much pessimism in the small business community. And I'm not even talking about the school district and, and property taxes. I'll give you another example. Then we'll go to the phone, Mike. Hang in there. Um, I'll give you another example. The, uh, the American Rescue Plan. Uh, what everybody get two thousand dollars or something like that, fifteen hundred bucks, whatever it is. Um, guess what Florence County got? And just the American Rescue Plan, hmm. thirteen point six million. Guess hmm. what else they're getting in September? Another thirteen point six million. I mean, it just kind of wow. me. The, how, how much money did the school district get? I think somewhere in the neighborhood of thirty to fifty million dollars. So the county gets twenty six or seven million of the American Rescue Plan. The hell does the county need with an extra $27 million? The school district gets an extra 30 or $50 million. Don't quote me on that number, but I think I'm pretty close. Somebody call me and tell me I'm wrong. Somebody from the county call me and say, you're dead wrong. We didn't get that money. Somebody from the school district call me and say, you're dead wrong. We didn't get that money. What did the small business man and woman get? I can tell you what they're getting right now. There's about $50 billion in a fund dedicated for small business. The Democrats and Mitt Romney are trying to take that money and reallocate it to the government for some of this vaccine awareness. In other words, all the money we spent in the name of making sure people are, are the vaccines available and people are getting vaccinated, we ran out of money. Now there's an extra $50 billion in a fund set aside for small business. Mitt Romney's working with the Democrats to take that money, transfer it, so we don't have to print new money because we've already spent all the other money because the school districts get millions and millions and the counties get millions and millions in the state. I mean, we've had two representatives here. I mean, Philip Lowe said it. We've never had this much money in state government and small business is dying on the vine. And we, I, for the life of me, I don't understand how anybody can with a straight face and a moral conscience defend that. Have we not understood or do we not understand that the essentials of government is to have revenue to provide the services and the only way, unless you believe that every year there's going to be a relief package and somebody sends 25 or 30 million your way, the only way is to empower the private sector to be productive and profitable. And you get a certain percentage of their productivity and profitability to do whatever it is you choose to do in local, state, and the federal government. It's absurd what we've allowed to happen with the, I don't know, Rev, the, um, the empowerment of the public sector as a preference over the empowerment of the private sector. When you say that stuff out loud that you just said, it's absurd. Scratch your head I mean, like it's, what? It's, it's in bizarre. The world? It's bizarre to me that small businessmen and women aren't rioting in the streets. You know what they're doing? They're digging. They're trying to figure it out. They're trying to figure it out, and they will if given a fighting chance. But they're not being given a fighting chance as we speak. The state is flush. The county's flush. The school district is flush. And we've got restaurant owners and manufacturers and, and car dealers that can't find cars. And I mean, it's bizarre to me how we've allowed this to be normalized. And we look around and say, well, I mean, it's probably somebody's fault, but I got that $2,000 check and I think I may get another.
uh, here before long. Let's go to the phone. Joe in Hartsville. Morning, Joe. Yeah, good morning, guys. Yeah, and the scary part, only 9% of all that money went to COVID relief anyway. Uh, they're finding out now $100 billion of it was fraudulent. But I, I try to explain to people the uh, inflation thing. Very simply, say you got a lot of people don't know who Honest Wagner was, but he was a very famous baseball player. Honest Wagner card probably worth about a million dollars, let's say. Well, all of a sudden, there was only one of them that was saved. Well, all of a sudden, three more cards come up, and now you got four. Well, that million-dollar card suddenly became $250,000, and that's what inflation does. You know, back when we were talking about the debt at $20 trillion, it was funny that we had spent $20 trillion on these poverty programs. And it's gotten to the point now to where I just read in 2021, 57% of taxpayers had no tax liability whatsoever. So that's too many people jumping in the cart. But as far as trying to explain to people what conservatism is, you know, over the years I've learned from my father and people like Rush Limbaugh and it's, it's basically about five or six principles. It's liberty, individual freedom, rule of law, energy independence, low regulations, low taxes, and always take care of the poor. The low regulations helps defeat these large companies, and the low taxes help starve the government because the government will grow as fast as you feed it. It's like a... Uh, a big old heifer hog. The more you feed it, the bigger it's going to get. So you you got to rein it in. And these people, you know, they don't think about if if we pay the trillion dollars a year for the next thirty years extra on our debt, we still wouldn't pay the federal debt off. So people have to start thinking about this stuff and start looking at these liberty individuals and get behind them, and let's turn this thing around before it's too late. Y'all have a good one. Thank you, Joe. Appreciate that. 843-661-0937. And it really is, a, it led into, I mean, the, the, the first question I asked this morning, um, I'm, I'm moderating a debate for the 7th Congressional um, District Republican primary candidates uh, two weeks from tomorrow, and I never imagined in a million years that as a Republican office holder or Republican debate moderator that I would address income inequality. I just, for the life of me, I mean, there's no way I'm going there. I mean, that's taboo. We don't talk about income inequality because we're capitalists and we believe in the free market. We believe in the marketplace and we let the marketplace dictate winners and losers. Well, I mean, and, I, and I'll call names. Uh, no, I won't. So some of these real big companies are, are not capitalist. They're simply not. Um, I'm not advocating for higher taxes. I would never, ever in a million years do that. Joe said something fundamental that, that needs to be understood. The only way to get government under control is to starve government. That is the only way. Government will not um, adjust itself. If you send, if you authorize the government to get their hands on all of your money, they will eventually believe they need more. That is the nature of government. I don't know if it's nefarious or not. The majority of people that I interacted with when I was in government were good, decent, moral people. 
I just don't think they have a comprehension of where that money comes from and how hard it is to get your hands on that money. But you've got so many forces working against Small Business America today. And, and that's why we see, I mean, the most alarming numbers I see are, are the number of, uh, of small business owners who are pessimistic about the future and the number of startups are in decline. We, we, we supposed or we, we, we believe we profess to live in, the, um, in the, the most fertile soil for entrepreneurship innovation in the world, right? So why are startups in decline? Why are people not starting businesses? I'll give you another example. If not for technology, if we didn't have this technology revolution that made Peter Thiel a multi-billionaire, that made Mark Zuckerberg a multi-billionaire, um, Google's the most powerful company on the planet. If we didn't have this technology revolution uh, for the past, what, 20 years, 15 years, somewhere thereabout, our economy would be um, nowhere near its current construct. I mean, when you look at all the uh, the asset appreciation in the marketplace, I mean, it's the big companies and it's the tech companies. Um so some of the other secondary companies have not performed well at all. Let's go to the phone. Here is Williams in Orangeburg listening to WTQS. Hi, Williams. Good morning. Hey, um, you know, I want to ask you about Rick Scott, the senator from Florida. He uh, supports some great ideas for the Republican Party. I want you to explain that to you. You listen to the audience. Audison. And I want to ask you about um, Green from Georgia, uh, the Republican superstar. Have a good day. Thank you, Wiggins. Appreciate it. I want to get back to um, to the inflation issue because I don't think we have an idea. I mean, I don't think we have any understanding or comprehension as to uh, the, the devastating effect. I mean, we know what it does to households. I mean, the $18 country fried steak goes to 24 bucks. And, and the point I want to make, Rev, and I'm not trying to, I'm not, I'm not trying to be ugly toward anybody in government. I'm, I'm serious. I'm not. But I think we need to let it be known that, that of all the money we created out of thin air, and I'm talking about the, um, the CARES Act, the American Rescue Plan. I think it was CARES 1, CARES 2, and the American Rescue Plan. Uh, Build Back better, better would have been similar. It would have subsidized green energy. I mean, that's what it was going to do. It was going to create um, a, an environment in which green energy companies could uh, be highly profitable without being profitable or have a lot of money without being um, highly profitable. I just think we, when we look at America first and we look at income inequality, I think that the major contributor or the major factor and force we need to be um, talking about negotiating with is empowering small business. We need to make it better to be in a small business. We need to encourage young people that, um, you know, onerous burdens and regulations and, and taxes are going to be something that we're going to, to fight the people the in charge now that they don't have any interest in that. Do I, mean, they? I, I don't know that they have any interest or just have a lack of understanding. Well, when somebody on a school board votes to increase taxes 20 percent, do they realize what they've done to the business model of someone who employs 25 or 30 people? I mean, I don't think these are bad people. I'm not suggesting that for a second. What they do rev is they have this tunnel vision. Um, it would be wonderful to have these kids not in mobile units. We have this obligation to educate our young people. It'd be wonderful to pay teachers another $5,000. Where does that money come from? You've got to think about that, guys. I agree that we should pay teachers more, good teachers. I agree that we should do everything within our power to get kids out of mobile units. 
into, into permanent, you know, uh, per- permanent facilities to get a better and higher quality education. Where does the money come from? And I think when you raise taxes on a small business community that is already taxed and burdened and regulated to a place, somebody on a school board or a local government has to look at information and the data that says, wow, we're in an all-time low in new small business startups. Could we be contributing to that? Could some of the onerous regulations, some of the new taxes, the fines, the fees, could any of that be contributing to um, but but as their priority, you know what they say, well, we need this money. We've got to provide this service. And I think there has been a lack of balance and understanding when you take a certain percentage of a small business wealth, you make it less profitable. You make it more likely to not be in business a year or two or three from now. And I think we fail to understand. I don't want sympathy. I just want an understanding. Well, when the public sector says we need more money, the money doesn't show up like a fart in the wind. The money comes from somewhere. <laughs> and it's normally the small business community that bears the burden. Take a break. Back in just a minute. For most of American history, the majority of workers worked in small business. Uh, since 2008, when the world blew up, there, there would be a fiasco or, a, uh, you know, we'll never let a crisis go to waste is what Rahm Emanuel said. Every time we have a financial crisis, the big businesses end up on the, the good end and the small businesses end up in, in a worse place. Mm. So about two of every three employees throughout American history have worked for a, a small business. That's less than 150 employees per the Wall Street Journal's definition. Um, now, about 47.2% of workers work for a company with 2,500 employees or more. 36% work at a company with 10,000 or more employees. So we've transitioned from a workforce that was employed by and large by what I'd call mom and pop small business um, into one where, and a lot of this is consolidation. And, and I'm the point I'm trying to make, Rev, it's not forced consolidation. It's not a hostile takeover, but regulation and taxation and the heavy hand of government has led small businesses to say, man, this is, I mean, I, I can't do it. I mean, there, there's just nothing left out or nothing left over once everything is paid up. Let's go to the phone. Here's Larry in the PD. Good morning, Larry. Hey, good morning, guys. You know, you kind of hit on something. You said it, but you may not have realized you said it, which was we can't, the government can't run without revenue, right? And what are we going to do when we put all these small businesses out of business? And the idea is they hope that that revenue is going to consolidate in the hands of these big businesses because then they can control everything. See, and you see it happening now. If if you got a thousand small businesses, and you say, oh well, you know, let's say they're they're internet platforms, and you say, well, we we don't want this kind of speech uh, on our internet platform. Okay, well, how are you going to get a thousand people to do that? It's going to be tough. But if you've got one person that does it, oh, it's easy. You just threaten them with with you know. Uh, you know, some kind of litigation, you threaten them with, you know, raising their taxes through the roof, cutting into their profits, and they'll do what they got to do to stay alive. They'll comply with the government. But you're not going to get a 1,000 businesses to do that, okay? You can't even get 50 states to go along. They've got to get it down to where there is just a handful of businesses. And I think sometimes when we think about capitalism and we think about, like, maybe communism, we think about them on a spectrum, like, you know, at the left is communism, at the right is capitalism. But it's more like a circle, and they they get they move away from each other on the side of the circle we look at, but they get real close to each other on the back side of that circle. And if you can have really hyper capitalistic large companies 
you can have a very communistic-looking government, and that's what I'm afraid of, and that's why I think they're doing it. It's not just because they're getting lobbied. It's because they want to exert more power over the economy, and the Constitution is in their way. But if they can use the power of the purse to force these businesses to do what they want, then they get away with it. There's another conspiracy theorist. Thank thank you, Larry. we got a hard break, top of the hour. Sorry, always a good call from Larry. Back in a minute. 843-661-0937, hour number three on a hump day Wednesday morning. Uh, I'm trying to gain some information on this Panthers facility. Yeah, what's uh, It's going kind on of interesting there. there and, um, I mean, it's a boondoggle. Um, it's yeah. a big boondoggle. I mean, the owner of the Panthers shut it down, right? Yeah, and, and there, the there's some, off. Well, but there, there's, some, uh, there's some questioning about what Rock Hill did, what the state did. I'll have a better, uh, I have a more informed opinion by the end of the week. I mean, I kind of know what you know about it. But I've got a couple of folks out there that are kind of um, investigating to see what they can find. They'll pass that information along, and I'll pass it along to you. But I don't know anything more than what most of you know um, today as we speak. And I know. I just heard, I mean, there's taxpayer dollars at play here. And a lot a, of taxpayer a dollars. A facility that's half built that will not get used, it appears. Yep. So. yep. Mm, more, more to that story. Can't wait to hear that. Okay, we talk a lot about America first, but how does America first relate to corporate america well i mean i think i mean you asked me during the break are are, are you insinuating that corporations are bad no i'm not arguing that i think corporations are necessary in a vibrant economy the point i'm trying to make is um let's use the, the pandemic as an example does it make any sense that small businesses were forced to close while walmart uh, home depot lowe's i'm picking on those because those are the, the most known big boxes target that, that most of us frequent. Um, some of the uh, some of the sit-down dining restaurants were forced by government to close. Uh, some of the national brands, national franchises were uh, were open. So, so the point I'm making is, yeah, I think America first, at some degree, not conceptually, but, but at some degree, America first is anti-corporate America. And by anti-corporate America, I'm talking about corporations that spend an enormous amount of their proceeds lobbying the government to create an unlevel playing field. That's the point I'm trying to make. See, a lot of us believe that the big corporations in America, I'm talking about BlackRock and Goldman and Walmart and some of the auto manufacturers, Toyota comes to mind. A lot of us believe that they're there making sure the government leaves them alone. That's not why they're there. They're not making an investment on on K Street in hopes and anticipation that government will leave them alone. They're normally requesting something of government. And if they're requesting something of government, they're probably doing it in their best interest at the expense of somebody else. I mean, if you're a company that has... the ladder up you talk about. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly right. If you're a company that has 30% of the market share, um, why wouldn't you want 35? Why wouldn't you want 40? So if you can um, lobby the government to change uh, some sort of regulation or some sort of process... Um, that creates an advantage for you, that's the great misnomer. And that's the great, um, I don't want to say mistake, miscalculation would be better. The fundamental conservative Republican believe that the lobbyists there on behalf of Walmart or, or Goldman or J.P. Morgan are there to make sure certain things aren't regulated. I'm arguing they're there to make sure certain things are regulated. They just want regulations to apply a certain way. See, that's bad. I do agree. That well, I mean, is, and, that's and that, not good but, for... But that's the nature of corporate America today. I'm not saying corporations are bad. 
I mean, America needs big corporations. We need auto manufacturers. We, we need um, home supply stores. We need, um, you know, we need Amazon. We need all these companies. And in the aggregate, they probably add value to the economy. But at the expense of whom? And, and I think when you look at, and I, I'll, I'll say this, Rev, um, I've never advocated for higher taxes, but why should an individual making sixty grand a year pay a higher percentage of their earned income than Amazon or, or somebody else? I mean, Amazon's uh, effective tax rate is 12.5% over the last decade. Um, why should Amazon be allowed to pay 12.5% and the person making sixty or $65,000 paying 26 or 7% effective? I'm not talking about statute. Uh, I'm talking about the effective tax rate, the actual rate they pay. I get R&D. I, I get the exemptions. I understand all of these repatriation of dollars. And I mean, I'm, I'm not naive to that, but, but corporate America and its ability to influence government is not a friend of America first. It's not a friend of the American working class. I'll give an example. How many times have we said over these airwaves and think about this for a second, then we'll go to the call. How many times have we said, how much more are we willing to pay for a polo shirt if made in America, if made in Indiana, instead of Malaysia. I mean, we've had that debate, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, America made goods. It'll be more expensive. And most of us agree we'd, we would pay a okay. little, little but, bit but more. But here's the point. Um, would you pay less? Would you pay more if made in America? Are we paying less because they're made in Malaysia? I mean, is a polo shirt really? Um, I mean, go back and look at a polo shirt and, and tell me what the price increase of it has been relating to everything else. We're told if we made them in America, they'd be much more expensive. You know what I believe? I believe that's corporate America trying to lie to the American public saying, if we make them in Malaysia, we make a lot more money. We're going to sell them for the same price. If a polo shirt would be $75 made in America, but our margins are 12%, our margins could be 26% if we make that $75 shirt in Malaysia with child labor and and no regulations and um, it's just slave labor. That, that's the point I'm trying to make. We've been convinced that the reason things are made in Malaysia and China is corporations um, would have to charge too much for that product or good if made in America. Is it? I mean, is, is, have you seen a dramatic decrease? I mean, when, when, when polo, and I'm using polo as an example. I'm just, please bear with me. I don't know where polo shirts are made. Um, but if a polo shirt was made in America, do you believe it would be more expensive than the price increases Polo has had with the shirt being made at a slave labor camp in China. I mean, the corporation's margins have increased. Um, that would be an interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I'm one thing, and I'm not picking on Polo. I'm just saying that would be a um, somewhat of a premium brand. It's not a luxury brand, but it would be a premium brand in America. The majority of listeners to our show can afford to buy a Polo shirt. They probably can't afford to buy an Armani suit. But the 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 the, the narrative has been. Man, if we had to make polo shirts in America, you don't know what they'd cost. There's no telling what they would cost. I don't buy that because I didn't see a decrease in the cost of a polo shirt when they went to China. Did you? I didn't see a decrease in the cost of Nike shoes when they went to China. I saw an increase in Nike's profit, probably an increase in Ralph Lauren's profit, and I'm not opposed to profitability. What I am opposed is to fixing and rigging the game. And American corporations have done a real good job of fixing and rigging the game, not having a a level playing field, but trying to create an unlevel playing field to their advantage. Let's go to the phone. Jim in Florence. Morning, Jim. Hey, good morning. Hey, so, Ken, if a polo shirt is $75 
and I'm making $30,000 a year. My wife has to work. Uh, she's making $30,000 a year. We're barely getting by. That's an expensive shirt. Um, but now, Ken, if if that shirt's $150, but I'm making 100 grand, my wife doesn't have to work. Um, yeah, you get where I'm going with that. I mean, okay, so it's more expensive. The, the, the numerical value of it's higher, but I'm making more money because there's more jobs here. Uh, rising, rising, you know, what, what's the old saying? Uh, uh, a rising tide raise all, raises all ships. Um, but, but Ken, I, I'll say, I'll say what you don't want to say. I'll say it. Mega corporations are bad. And in 2022, they're on the verge of being evil. I'll say that. Um, I mean, I'll agree with you, Jim. I really believe that with every fiber of my conservative bones. We talk about government shouldn't pick winners and losers. Well, guys, that ship sailed. <laughs> if government's going to do it, so we might as well pick them. So if, if it's going to do it, let's pick them. You know, it should be, and we should pick America firsters. We should elect America firsters. Who's going to make it miserable for Walmart? It's going to make it miserable for Amazon. Make it miserable for uh, all these mega corporations to do business. And they should make, as far as dealing with the government, make being a small business owner the, the best thing yet. They, you know, and, and one other thing, Ken, is I hear all these guys talking, calling in. We need a convention of states, convention of states. But they're, okay, you're, you want a convention of states, but you're not addressing anything. All these convention of states talk about is a balanced budget and uh, term limits. Well, what they do, that's not addressing the real issue, Ken. Last year, Walmart spent $7 million lobbying. Why is Walmart even allowed to lobby? Walmart's not an individual. The, the right to free speech is an individual right. It's not a corporation right. We need to address corporations in our Constitution, and strip, especially these mega corporations, and strip them of their abilities to lobby. That's how we're going to get fundamental change in this country, and that's how we're going to bring back the American working class is to go after these large corporations and their ability to lobby. Thank you, Jim. Thank you, Jim. Appreciate it. See, Jim and I singing off the same shitty music there. I mean, I, I'll, I'll go there. I mean, I think the most ambitious agenda item of America First is to take on mega corporations. Some of these monopolies of the financialization of our economy has benefited a small share of the American work, or excuse me, the American uh, companies. I'm talking about Goldman and uh, BlackRock and Blackstone and J.P. Morgan. Um, these guys carry too much weight in our economy. So, yes, I mean, I'm for term limits. I'm absolutely for term limits. Mm -hmm. I'm for a balanced budget amendment. But at the end of the day, what about term limits makes your life better? I mean, if you're a working class American, what about term limits honestly makes your life better? I mean, it's sound body. And, and yeah, we'll, we'll send those career politicians home. Okay, but what makes your life better as a working class American? And I think America First has a great opportunity if, if, uh, if molded and directed in the right way to empower the American working class. I'll give you an idea. Why not exempt the first $75,000 of tax or the income from tax? I mean, I, I think that's yeah. an interesting idea. The yeah. first seventy-five grand you earn, you're not taxed at all. There mm -hmm. is no money. Well, what would the government do? I mean, how would they'll have to figure it out. I mean, that's what you've had to do as somebody who's bombarded with tax increases and fee increases, and you know, you got local government, you got school boards, you got state government, you got the federal government. Everybody wants a piece of your pie. They don't get it. 
I mean, if you make a hundred grand, you pay taxes on twenty five thousand dollars a year. If you make two million, you pay taxes on one point nine what two five uh, seven five million two five million dollars. Um, that's the yeah, way that's I would construct the tax code. Um, let's let's allow, and and this would be transitional, and this would take a while, but let's make Social Security a transferable asset. You have an account; it's your money. When you die, you leave it to your family. You begin to create some sense of generational wealth. It's inheritable. It's transferable. It's a part of your state. Rev has been working all of his life. I've been working all of my life. I don't wait on the damn government to send me a check for $2,100 or $2,300 or $2,800. I don't worry about CPI. That's my money. I'm entitled to that money. You took my money for 40 years while I worked. I want my money back. And I want to decide who to give my money to, 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 to financially plan and organize. If I want to sit down with Reggie Armstrong at Armstrong Wealth, that's my decision to make. And Reggie and I come up with, with a model moving forward. And when I meet my maker, my kids, my wife, uh, my church, uh, my university, they get my money because that's my money, damn it. And we've got to get back to a, I mean, it's almost a rudeness that it's going to take to confront government. Um, I'll make this prediction. I think sooner or later, Americans will stop paying their taxes. I don't know that I'll live long enough to see it, but I think government's expansion, government's authority, government's overreach, that's going to be, I mean, it's, it's already becoming really, really offensive. But, but Jim's raising valid points when he says, okay, um, conservatives score a point if we have a convention of states and we have a balanced budget amendment. What about your life is better? And that's kind of the argument J.D. Vance is making. I mean, what are we going to do when we get our hands on the levers of power? When, when Republicans take over the House and Senate, hopefully in 22, but, but at least in 24, when, when Republicans have control of the House and Senate and hopefully a president, what are we going to do? I mean, are we going to um, declare war on Walmart and Amazon? Probably not. But can we do things exclusive of those um, mega corporations? in the name of empowering the American working class. How much different would your life be if we had term limits? Very little. How much different would your life be if we had deficit spending uh, disallowance? Very little. How much different would your life be if you're allowed to keep every dollar of the first $75,000 you earned and your Social Security account was your money, transferable, inheritable? How much different is your life when we do? It's unbelievably different. And that's what we have to understand, um, that there's got to be some orthodoxy change within. We've always been free marketers, and we take pride on the free market and term limits and these shiny objects in political speak are what we pay close attention to. Once again, I emphatically support term limits. I mean, I believe that the, the amount of debt will destroy this nation at some point in time, but it doesn't change my world. The, the problem, I mean, here's what deficit spending would do. I mean, the, the, the disallowing deficit spending, I mean, it would neuter the Fed, and the stock market would probably go to 8,000. What is it, 35 or six or 7,000 now? I mean, it'd probably be 10,000 or somewhere thereabout. You know, I've tried to do this, and I've tried to read articles. I can't get to a place where I understand it. What is the value of the market? What is the, the predicted or estimated value of the market if we didn't have you know, $30 trillion in debt, if we didn't have an activist Fed, if we didn't have, in other words, if we had historical levels of debt, historical interest rates, what would the value of the American stock market be, or the global equity market for that matter? I mean, we've done this before. We've tried to translate, uh, what did I say, in 1980, 
the value of global equities and the value of the glo- the world's um, gold reserves were one and the same, $2.5 trillion. Today, um, gold is about $9 trillion. The equity markets are $155 trillion. Put that in your pipe and smoke it. I mean, if you benefited, I mean, if you're a big investor, you have. And if you've got hundred grand in a 401k or a Roth IRA, you've done okay. But, but what you've done pales in relation to what Goldman has done or J.P. Morgan has done, or BlackRock has done, or Walmart has done, or Target. We've, and once again, you can cut it any way you want to cut it. You can dice it and slice it any way you choose to dice and slice it. It never ends well. And we're no different when such a small percentage of Americans and their companies own and control such a large percentage of that nation's wealth. That never, ever ends well. 843-661-0937 is our number. Let's go to the phone. Mike in Darlington. Hello, Mike. Hey, um, you outdone yourself this morning, Ken, I, but you gave me heartburn with that uh, explanation of the uh, uh, where the money went. And that, that was uh, the, the, the reads. I don't, I don't think a lot of people get it, and I think you need to go rehash that a couple of times over the next uh, few weeks or months to uh, maybe get through to some people. But uh, you're absolutely right. Uh, The regulations, and they've been flowing that way for uh, decades, half a century or more, where more and more regulations are being put on the small businesses and the small producers. And the government, the drive toward consolidation is – helpful in some instances but in other instances it's downright destructive uh the uh, as far as uh, the education the use of education there needs to be some time studies how much time are they spending teaching uh basic arithmetic the idea the concept of greater than less than i think if, if people had a really good understanding of greater than or less than they would be absolutely outraged at what the government has done to us over the last uh, two years. And that that is something that cannot be overemphasized. But these little regulations are draining the blood right out of the uh, right, right out of the economy and out of the small businesses and individuals. And I, I don't know what you can do to uh, stop that, but that needs to be part of it is uh, doing away with some of these regulations on small businesses. Big businesses, they have entire uh, divisions and departments of lawyers and accountants to deal with these regulations. Uh, A a small uh, business uh, can't deal with it. And that way, and uh, because it's just uh, prohibitively expensive, and we've seen this for years, and no one wants to speak up and say, hey, look, every time you pass a law, it is costing the people money. And this inflation is a tax on the poorest among us, and it is, it is, the, uh, it is absolutely evil in the results that it causes. And that's about all I can say except that uh, – we need less government. We need uh, large mega corporations. We need to put a. We've got to put a halter on them. I think you got to. You you got. You better put a steel bit in their mouth because uh, 
it, it just a halter won't do it. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate yeah. it. Well, I mean, we live in an era. I mean, I, I joke around. I, I try to throw these words around to create a conversation and hope um, provoke you into um, being inspired enough to call in and express yourself. But financial aristocracy. I mean, I think America right now is in an era of, I mean, it's not the Gilded Age. I'm not arguing with that. But I think we live in a very aristocratic era of business and finance. Um, They have played the game far better than anybody ever has. Uh, The enormous wealth that this country generates has been very disproportional in who hands uh, it ends up in. I'll ask you this. I mean, if, um, if big business has... Um, what, what, I mean, the, the bottom 65 million households have less than, um, less than, well, a little better than one half of 1%. I think I've read where it's about 0.7. So it's less than 1%. So the bottom 50%, which include about 65 million households have less than 1% of the equity value of the U S stock market. I mean, it comes out of $2,900 per, uh, per 65 million Americans. That's kind of the way the math uh, works itself out. Do we believe that the people who run these major corporations who have amassed this enormous amount of wealth, do we believe they're smarter than the guys 20 years ago or 30 or 40 years ago? I mean, do we believe these companies are better run today than they were 50 years ago? Do we believe that the CEO of Amazon stays in his office three hours longer than the CEO of um, of uh, Ford Motor Company 40 years ago? They, they played a game. They've created a, a, a kind of a financial aristocracy that, has created very unlevel playing conditions of which we try to play the game on. And America first would be well served if it prioritizes that. And to use J.D. Vance, I may try to get Rev to find that, where Vance says at one of these um, symposiums, or I don't know, it's a, um, it's a, it's kind of a, uh, what am I trying to say, Rev? It's a seminar of some sorts. It's kind of a convention. There, there would be a better word, a convention that he speaks and he says, you know, we've got to get our arms around um, if given the opportunity to control government, what are we going to do? I mean, the Mitt Romneys of the world say things, and they, they, they execute policy based on, you know, tried and truisms. I'm arguing that the most effective America first for the next 25 or 30 years will be an America first that looks in its rearview mirror and says, wow, the American working class is fundamentally better off today than they were 25 or 30 years ago and everything needs to be on the table social security empowerment by that i mean privatization um and, and if 15 percent tax rate's good enough for amazon then the first seventy-five thousand dollars, and the government just has to adjust i mean the government will have to deal with whatever the government has to deal with i mean it, you know um one of the questions i'll let the cat out of the bag for you um, candidates listening or do listen to this show one of the questions I'm going to ask of all these uh, folks asking for your support for Congress is, um, is there a plan to address the debt? Does that plan include Social Security or Medicare? And if it doesn't, explain yourself. I mean, I think that's a very provocative question for a Republican to be forced to answer. Let's take a break. We'll be back in just a minute. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Phones are lit up. Let's go there. They are. And it's Ashley in Poston's Corner. Hello, Ashley. Good morning, fellas. Uh, I agree with everything y'all saying today. Um, I want to add two more things to the agenda um, that I think America First could benefit from. Give a true, a, a true accounting of the inflation rate, not what we have now, but a true accounting of the inflation rate. And number two, I want things made in America, but I want things made by Americans. 
I would I would say that we crack down on all the illegal workers. You got companies right around here. If I shows up to their door doorstep right now, sixty percent of the of the workers are gone. They're just out the door. It'd be like turning on the lights and watching roaches go. They would be gone, gone. We had over a million people in the last six months come over our border. And I'd like to get y'all's opinion on that, and I'll take it off the air. Well, I mean, I, I do th- thank Ashley, appreciate that. I do believe that along with empowering the American working class, I mean, you're going to have, it's not a single issue that's going to make life better and more prosperous and beneficial for the American working class, but immigration is going to be a big part of that. No question about it. Um, I mean, I can imagine me running for office today. I love the people of Ukraine. I pray for the people of Ukraine. I'm not opposed to us militarily supporting, you know, with some of our armaments, but I'm far more concerned uh, about the American-Mexican border than I am the Ukrainian-Russian border, and I would say that on the stump. I mean, I think that has to be a big part of America first. Um, I've read some things Pat Buchanan has said recently. Buchanan's an old guy now, and he's always been somewhat. He's been uh, a a declared uh, non-interventionist, but the media's trying to label him as an isolationist and fringist and and all these other sorts of things. I don't believe he is. I think he's very much a non-interventionist. I think he's very similar to Rand Paul in that regard. But but he's basically arguing that the president is allowing an invasion of our nation. And um, as I'm thinking of Article 4, Section 5, uh, one of those articles and sections, I think I'm pretty close. I may look it up during the break, but um, but it prohibits a president from allowing. It, it, it demands or commands a president to, to basically address an invasion. And presidents throughout history have done that. I mean, there's no doubt about it. They have stood guard uh, over our, our borders and, and they protected our borders. And Biden is basically um, encouraging an invasion of people who don't live here. So, so I am fully supportive of what Ashley said. And if I were running for office today, I'd clean it up a bit and I'd put my suit on. But I would say, look, the Ukrainian-Russian border is a global matter. I'm not a member of Congress of the world. My priority will be to stop this free flow of um, you know immigrants, illegal immigrants, making their way into our nation Um not respecting any of the laws associated. Let's go to the phone. Steve in Florence. Good morning, Steve. You're on. Good morning, guys. You're talking about Social Security and Medicare. I don't think I'm ever going to get that. I'm 35. The people younger than me, they don't want to work, so they can't pay into it. Um, I think they should just get rid of it. It's just a tax that's coming out of my paycheck. I'm losing three, 400 bucks, whatever it is. Uh, I don't even know where that money is going. Probably going to feed some welfare families so they can eat steak and lobster for dinner while I'm eating spaghetti. But um, you're touching on the polo shirt. I I don't really buy Nike and support their slave labor that they have going on there. Um, You buy a shirt that's an extra large. By the time you wash it, it's a medium. So I tend to buy American the American shirts that I buy, they cost the same price, if not less, than what a Nike shirt would cost. And I'll take that off the air. Thank you, Steve. Appreciate it. I mean, I don't know where polo shirts are made. Don't have any idea. Um, it's an iconic brand. I mean, it's a brand that's fairly mainstream. It is a premium brand. I don't think it's a high-end brand. It's not a luxury brand. I mean, it's not. I mean, Don Staley wears luxury brands. Uh, Louis Vuitton and Gucci. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah. she does. Yeah, she does. She's got her own um, brand, so to speak. And uh, once again, Louis Vuitton and, and Gucci and Armani, those would be luxury brands. Um, I'm a country fried steak chicken wing kind of guy. 
uh, really my 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 you know my world got in an uproar when they went from 18 to 24 on the country fried steak and um yeah but gucci and armani and all that, that that's a world far far away as far as i'm concerned but the, ar- the argument i'm trying to make when it comes to a polo shirt and um you know when polo decided to make their uh when anybody i mean let's use nike we know nike makes shoes in um in china well, i mean we know that because the nba has themselves a bit conflicted by um you know uh black lives matter and human rights being celebrated but you know we'll take the nike uh money and despite the shoes being made uh, by slave labor in some of these um labor camps and i'm talking about 12 and 13 year olds making you know three dollars a week making a hundred dollar air jordan so lebron james or whomever can be paid or compensated by nike to the tune of millions and millions and millions of dollars so let's use nike as an example i mean if nike argued that it's too expensive to make a shoe in america um why what about making a shoe in america is more expensive uh, than making a shoe in china well we know the reason i mean it's regulation it's labor laws it's uh, quality of life we don't force kids to work for three dollars a week you know making shoes so nike can increase their profit but nike will tell you that making our shoes in china allow us to make shoes affordable have you priced a nike tennis shoe recently they're, they're not very affordable uh you know i mean think about it if if you know the argument nike makes is the reason we have to make these shoes in china is so they can be affordable but a pair of nike tennis shoes were north of a hundred dollars so, so the argument they're making is disingenuous. It's to pad their profit. It's to increase their margins. I'm not opposed to companies making money, but let's be honest about, you know, where we are in um, this very worthy debate. Let's go to the phone. Here is Bob in Florence. Good morning, Bob. Hey, good morning, guys. Hey, um, maybe, maybe I'm not listening close enough, or maybe there is a kind of understood um, logic to this, but... Um, all this uh, this immigration and uh, the, the the administration defending what they're doing at the borders and Jan Psaki getting out and saying we're doing this and we're doing that and people saying oh we're we're trying to help people escaping oppression it's got nothing to do with that it's all about changing the demographics every day every day Biden Pelosi that whole Democratic establishment hear about the border and it's it's another vote coming across the border another vote coming across the border another vote coming across the border i mean am i am i wrong do you guys see it as that no but i totally agree with you i mean they're they're looking at this as a way i mean if you can't win with the voters you have you change the voters yeah and and i'll tell you um i've called before and someday you know we might get to the bottom of the uh the, the blonde lady that pulled the suitcases out from underneath the tables. Um, and, and I know that, that they're watching this too, and they're back slapping and saying, yeah, we got them. We really fixed them good. They're going to be doing the same thing when here comes the election and they're stuffing the ballot boxes with people who aren't even citizens. And, and I tell you, you know, you can make a monkey out of me one time, but, don't do it a second time. I'm, I'm really, I said it before, this time it's personal. Thanks a lot. Thank you, sir. Appreciate that. The United States shall guarantee to every state in this union a republic form of government and shall protect each of them against invasion. That's Article 4, Section 4 
of the Constitution. And there are several examples. I mean, during the War of 1812, um, our buddy Andrew Jackson, you know, he was involved in um, protecting the border. 1945, President James Polk sent an American army to Texas to validate our claim to all the land north of the Rio Grande um, that had belonged to the Lone Star Republic when it seceded from Mexico in 1836 and joined the Union. Um, so there are several examples of American presidents. Uh, Dwight Eisenhower, first term, uh, one million illegal immigrants. That's about a day's worth on the southern border today. But one million illegal immigrants had moved into the United States from Mexico. Um, I commissioned uh, West Point classmate General Joseph Swing to effect their removal. You're here illegally. We're going to round you up. I mean, how many times we, we can't round them up and send them home? Damn well what Ike did. I mean, he rounded them up and sent them home. Um, and, and all of these incidents involved America's southern border. Um, each of the presidents of those times, uh, in those days, they took very seriously their constitutional duty to defend the nation's borders against invasion, whether it's violent or nonviolent. doesn't matter. I mean, Russia has a, a very violent invasion of Ukraine. The, 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 the United States government today is allowing the subverting Article 4, uh, excuse me, Section 4, yeah, Article 4, Section 4, and they're allowing for an invasion, however nonviolent it may be. Now, now some, of the, um, some of the border towns will tell you it's violent. I mean, some of the farmers and ranchers, I mean, I've seen interviews with these, and they say they sleep with their gun under their pillow, and they're worried about, you know, all these illegal immigrants. But, but you know, Mike's, I mean, Bob's exactly right. They, the, the, the Democrats believe that a higher percentage of these people will eventually uh, become voters. And I didn't say citizens. That seems to not matter anymore. They'll become voters. They'll cast a ballot in favor of the candidate with a D beside their name. Take a break. Back in a minute. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number. Uh, somebody on the phone? Okay. No okay. calls. Um, we could go on this forever. The, the, the There's a phrase talking about immigration a second ago, and that would be something very much uh, you know, America first would have a keen interest in. Um, how many of you, I mean, raise your hand, say it silently yourself. How many of you care more about the Mexican-American border than you do the Ukrainian-Russian border even today? I mean, I do. I mean, I'll, I'll level with you. My I'm much up. more interested. Um, I mean, the human atrocities break my heart. I mean, they really do. But it's not the first human atrocity. It won't be the last. I mean, we all care. We all pray. We all are sympathetic toward but um, Chris Kuhn said he's the uh, the senator from Delaware who says he's Joe Biden's best friend. Um, he was on Face the Nation and said something similar to what he said yesterday at an event at the University of Michigan. He gave a speech at the University of Michigan, and I wrote down exactly what he said. Um, Putin will only stop when we stop him. It's time to take the next step. Now, the next step, as far as I'm concerned, is boots on the ground. I think Chris Coons, and and this what this was uh, this is what concerns me um, greatly is Coons talks to or talks at Biden. I don't even talk to Biden now. You can talk at Biden and hope he can understand uh, what it is you're saying. It's very interesting to me. Um, I don't know of a single Democrat saying that Biden's doing a good job. I mean, even when Trump was in the um, you know when he had one of those kind of off the off the beaten path days when Trump kind of went off. Uh, went off the rails. You know what I mean? We'd all scratch our heads and say, damn, dude. I mean, you should. <laughs> Everybody except Hannity. Yeah, but but there were still some defenders. You know, there, there was still some out there that said, yeah, bad day, but I mean, the guy's still doing uh, kind of sort of what he said he would do. I don't know anybody that defends Biden. 
I mean, it, it really is an embarrassment. I think the person who voted for Biden and says Biden's doing a good job believes they have foregone a certain degree of their uh, reputation. In other words, I voted for the guy. I get that. I mean, he's not Trump. You know, I, I wanted to get and, back and that. That's kind of the response you get. I had a discussion with somebody the other day who is not a Trump fan, definitely uh, voted for Biden, and I was trying to you know, make some of these points. You know, you still can't support this guy, right? Right? And, uh, yeah, he. it was always but Trump. Yeah. But Trump. He's not Trump. Yeah. Uh, it, it, okay, we got a president that's not Trump, but in every other account, uh, he's been a miserable, miserable failure and a national disaster. Take a break. Back in a minute. We were young and strong and running against the wind. There's a line in that song a bit later when he says, I began to find myself seeking shelter again and again. I've tried to convince myself I'm there to the point in my life where I need to start seeking shelter and shelter. But the the, the, the fight is so engaging. Um, it, it's so much fun to be in the arena. It really is. Um, you know, I've, I've said before, if you, if you won $10 million or $50 million, I mean, $100 million would be a different animal. Uh, but if you won ten million bucks, would you go to the beach or stay in the arena? And um, as much as I try to convince myself I'd go to the beach and grow a beer and smoke weed, I'd probably um, I'd probably stay in the arena because I enjoy it. As much as I complain about it, I still do enjoy uh, being in the fight. If you had two hundred billion, would you try to launch rockets into space and build electric cars and buy Twitter? There, there's a reason the good Lord has never blessed me with two hundred billion dollars. <laughs> he realizes that I'm not smart enough. Uh, you put that much money, I'd be in a, a stimulus package. I mean, you wouldn't have to, you wouldn't have to spread the money across the, the 330 million people. Just give it to me and I'd stimulate the economy. Uh, but, but in all honesty, I mean, we, we've had this conversation. I, I don't want anything I don't have. You know, I, I want help from a family. Got that. I want, uh, you know, kind of a good job. Got that. Good group of friends. Got that. Solid family. Got that. Live in a good place. Got that. I mean, you know, we, we tend to pay attention or tend to concentrate on these things that we wish were better instead of the uh, the, the over-blessings is what I call, uh, you know, the things that I've got that I probably will never, ever uh, deserve. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I enjoy being in the fray. I enjoy being in the debate. Um, it's probably as fun right now as it's ever been because we can kind of sort of be the I told you so uh, person. In other words, Trump doesn't tweet mean and he gets a little bit out of control and uh, yeah, you wish he'd stay more um, conforming to the reverence of politics, but he's not a moron and he's not in cognitive decline. Uh, maybe he eats too many fish sandwiches. Maybe he needs to lose a little weight. Um, maybe he is, um, uh, once again, a little more irreverent than you wish an American president is. But I think the guy we've got now is, um, I mean, even on his best day, Biden was not a real smart guy. I mean, he was a 50-year politician, so there's some savviness, I think, that goes along with that. But even on Joe Biden's best day, nobody mistake, or he was not mistaken for um, a member of Mensa. Uh, he's kind of a political survivor. Um, I think he's a political thug. I mean, I think the Biden family is as corrupt as the Clintons ever were. They're just not as smart about it or strategic Come about it find out. as the Clintons are. There might be a There's about 31 million bucks and four Chinese business people that it appear to me they're focusing on. I think there's more money than that. I mean, I think there's an excess of 100 million when it comes down to it, but it seems to me that some of the questions that the I guess the prosecutors are asking in front of the grand jury are, are, are kind of central to $31 million and four Chinese business people 
Um, and then once again, the narrative will switch from, okay, his son was out of control, but it in no way, shape, or form uh, links to Joe Biden. Uh, Rosemont Horizon was a consulting company owned by, um, at one time, Vinnie Barbarino, I think, owned a share or a little <laughs> bit of, um, of uh, yeah, Tony Bobolinsky yeah. is his name. But um, <laughs> hey, Vinnie Barbarino, is, uh, it just sounds better. <laughs> and, and we all know, welcome back, Cotter. And um, was that was that kind of the introduction of John Travolta to the national I scene? Think so sure, yeah, yeah. interesting. After there. that was uh, Greece and Saturday Night Fever, right? You know, and there's a little irony in this when you think about Biden. You think about for uh, historically, he's been referred to as lunch pail Joe, right? I mean, he rode the Amtrak. He's a working class politician. He's the um, he's the average man. Uh, and now we're finding that he is totally in opposition of the people with the lunch pails. Um, and I'm talking about the American working class. Give me something that Biden has done that has been good for the American working class. Um, I can't think of a single thing. And I think what they're allowing to do or allowing to, to uh, take place on the southern border is a travesty. I mean, an absolute travesty and a human disaster that will cause more problems uh, with a ripple effect. Uh, in the private sector. I want to go to this real quick, and then we'll go to J.D. Vance. We've got, because we talked a lot about America First, and I think Jim exclaimed very passionately, I think the majority of Republicans, the majority of conservatives believe that a convention of the states would be good. And out of the convention of states, if we could get either or term limits or deficit, you know, the, the disallowing of deficit spending, in other words, a balanced budget amendment, those would be wins. I mean, term limits would be a win. I think we're a better country if we term limited our representatives. I think we're a better nation if we didn't allow those people to deficit spend. Um, I don't know how you meet the obligations and responsibilities. In fact, it might be impossible without messing around with Social Security and Medicare. Well, I mean, you got to fundamentally change some of these entitlement mm-hmm. programs that um, some of our callers say aren't entitlements because I paid in. But I'm just saying, you know, I'm, I'm speaking in Washington and the language of Washington, they are entitlements because once you're of a certain age, you're entitled to receive the benefit of those programs that you did pay into, but it's still categorized as an entitlement. So, I mean, I don't know if we could do the sort of entitlement reform necessary to get our financial house in order so we didn't have to to deficit spend. But the point I'm trying to make is, and I think the point Jim made is, okay, let's say we had a convention of states. Let's say 38 states ratify the amendment. Remember, 34 can call for a convention. States takes 38 to ratify the amendment. Let's say we do that and 38 sign up to um, implement term limits and to require um, budget neutral uh, budgets. In other words, um, you can't deficit spend. What improves? I mean, the nation's better. And I guess to some degree, um, proportionally and incrementally, your life would be a little bit better. But what fundamentally changes about the way you live your life and, and, and your, your plot in life if we had term limits and, and a balanced budget amendment? I would argue very little. But what changes if we have um, the first $75,000 of earned income um, receives no taxation? It's tax exempt. Maybe the number is 100000 I mean, the first 100000 of household income, nobody gets any of it but you. You get all of it. Every single penny of it. I mean, we'll deal with state government and, and the local government at some point in time with property tax and local option sales tax and capital property or capital improvement. I mean, there, there are a lot of ways that local government raises revenue, but you get to keep all of your income. I mean, every red cent of it. Uh, if you're making $52,000 a year, 
you get a thousand bucks a week. They're hitting a line here and a line there and another line uh, over here. I had a um, I had a gentleman work for me in the truck body manufacturing business. This is years and years and years ago, but he was trying to become a citizen, and he had his green card. And there are certain things that apply to a green card. There are certain things that apply to citizenship that don't apply to a green card. Uh, once he became a citizen, um, the taxes became a bigger part of the equation. And I can remember him saying, this is no good. I liked not being a citizen better than I like being a citizen. And it was the taxes, you know, the tax implication on his earned income. Well, I mean, that fundamentally changes your life. I mean, if you, instead of getting 75% of your income, you get a hundred percent of it. And instead of the, um, the take home pay being $75,000 the take home pay, is a hundred thousand. I mean, that changes your world fundamentally much more than you know term limits or a balanced budget amendment. But once again, um, the government has to have money, and I think we've made the point today. Um, there is no amount of money you send the government that they won't declare that they need. I mean, whether it's the federal government, the state government, local government, they'll always argue that they need this money. Um, most of us figure out a way to do with less when we're forced to, right? I mean, if you get laid off at work, if you get a cut in pay, uh, in 2008, we cut our hours by 10 hours a week. We swapped shifts. We had some people working Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, some people working Tuesday and Thursday. We didn't have the workload, and we didn't want to lay off anybody. We wanted to kind of share the pain, and um, so, so we, we got creative in the way we paid our employees, but everybody had to sacrifice. I mean, everybody had to figure out a way to to keep their boat afloat and make their deal work. Um, businesses are always doing that. Why should the government be any different? Why should the government be allowed to just put the spending on autopilot and not challenge themselves, not address some of the, the inefficiency, some of the bloatedness or, or fat in government? Well, I mean, they're, they're not going to self-correct themselves. And I would argue the best way to put government in its place is to send it less money. Simple. Just send it less money. Um, they'll figure it out. If they don't, they'll cut a program or they'll raise the social security age. They'll raise the Medicare um, eligibility age. That's just the nature of the way they'll have to conduct themselves. But, but America first is, I think, um, at its best when it's taking its vision, it's, um, it's, I don't want to say it's dream, but it's, um, it's governing philosophy. America first is a baby. I mean, it's not a, um, a historic figure in American politics. I think it by far it's the most powerful force in American politics today. America first reverberates in both political parties. Bernie Sanders doesn't call himself an America firster. He's a socialist. But a lot of his inclinations, a lot of his followers' inclinations are the game is rigged. I mean, Bernie says it over and over again. Uh, we got to level the playing field. Now, he thinks socialism is the answer because that's what socialists believe. You know, let's 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 let everybody finish the race at about the same time. The problem with Bernie's philosophy is we all finish the race at about the same time. We're just an hour behind, you know, where we should have been. I think America First says let's give people who add productivity to the economy um, the compensation they deserve for adding that productivity into the economy. The point I'm trying to make is. You got someone who labors in a in a factory, and they they make widgets every day, and the widgets improve the quality of life. Let's say I'm just thinking about let's say an electric toothbrush. I mean, there's a company manufacturing electric toothbrushes. If the company doesn't manufacture electric toothbrushes, 
we got to find a different way to brush our teeth. Those of us who use electric toothbrushes and, and that person in that factory is making 60 grand a year, making something that is vital to you living your life the way you choose to live your life. Um, take that 60 grand juxtaposed to the, the private equity manager, the hedge fund manager. You got a guy in, in Wall Street running a hedge fund. He takes a stack of papers from here, moves them over there and makes $350 million in a year. What has he added to the economy? I mean, I understand the nature of finance. I understand he created value where there was no value, and a lot of numbers moved around on a sheet of paper. But what did he do that, that fundamentally made your life better? Nothing. But, but he made, you know, a thousand times more than the person making the electric toothbrush of which you need to operate, as it's supposed to, every single morning. And the America First agenda, it, to me, argues that we got to change that. We, we got to give up on some of these um, libertarian orthodoxies and and mindsets that we have. And when we get in control of government, we've got to do things. We can't travel the countryside saying we need a convention of states because we need term limits and we need a balanced budget amendment. Okay, I agree with all of that. I think we need a convention of states. I think we need a balanced budget amendment. I think we need term limits. But I think the average American would rather keep the money they earn and allow the Social Security benefits to be transferable and inheritable. I mean, am I wrong? I mean, what about your life improves fundamentally if those two things happen? Not much. And I think America First has to have a practicality about it. So, so when and if the, the Dr. Oz's of the world, the J.D. Vance, the Blake Masters, the Ron DeSantis, the Donald Trump crowd, I mean, when these people who profess uh, Tucker Carlson, Josh Hawley, when, when these folks who profess to want to be a part of this movement, when, when they get power, what do they do with that power? And J.D. Vance spoke at a, uh, I think it's a conservative nationalist convention, and, and he basically argues that, you know, we have to, uh, I don't want to, we don't have to forsake what we believe, but we have to take um, the the idea of having political power and utilizing it. Let's go to J.D. Vance. The, the point there, guys, is, I mean, you know, we, we historically have argued and we'll pound the podium and we'll rant and rave about term limits. And, and I'm picking on term limits here and um, I'm picking on the convention of the states that I'm a supporter of. Um, J.D. Vance is talking about real people in real places dealing with real issues in the real world. And, and term limits is a political, uh, it's a, kind of a political hot potato. And then a balanced budget amendment. I mean, who who on the conservative side of the equation is not for a balanced budget amendment? Because if you're not, you're not a conservative. Now, now, how to get there is much more complicated. But J.D. Vance is talking about a political movement that encompasses um, real-world problems and, and politically motivated solutions to those real-world problems. And the argument he makes is the problems that were created were not random or happenstance. They were very political. Do you not believe that the, I mean, we know the deal now because there have been drugs. I mean, the, the drug companies have settled. They intentionally misled the public in the hopes and anticipation of selling more opiates. It's devastated and destroyed. That was a political issue. That was not an individual choice issue. I mean, the government was complicit in allowing drug manufacturers and distrib uh, distributors to send millions of pills to counties and cities with very few residents. I mean, that, that was a political issue. So if the problem was created politically, the solution, J.D. Vance argues, has to include some degree of politics. Let's take a break. We'll be back in just a minute. 
Properties is one of the top real estate companies in the Florence and PD area. Trust the sale of your home to the company with truly different marketing and proven results. We are your local hometown brokerage that you can depend on. We were here yesterday. We are here for you today. We will be here for you tomorrow. Visit us at GraceStoneSC.com. It's time now for the Wake Up Carolina Winer Line, brought to you by Delta Building Systems. Call 803-720-5260. Congressman Jim Clyburn endorsed Joe Biden for president last year. I want to know how everybody thinks that's working out for him now. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, Biden gets a lot of or gives a lot of credit, and Clyburn takes a lot of credit in um, endorsing Joe Biden when it looked like Biden didn't have any legs to go forward, it kind of looked like the campaign was going up with Bernie Sanders or Pete Buttigieg. Biden endorses, excuse me, Clyburn endorses. He comes to South Carolina. The African-American vote turns out all over the South in favor of Biden. And um, yeah, I mean, if, if, if Joe Biden owes his presidency to anybody, it's probably Jim Clyburn. If we owe uh, the economic devastation and situation we're in today, we probably... Um, Need to call Clyburn's office and thank him for um, helping Joe Biden get elected president. I don't know if you saw this or not, but um, there, there's some controversy surrounding Congressman Clyburn now about a couple of hundred thousand dollars of campaign contributions that has made its way into his family's hand. In other words, his um, one of his family members does something for the campaign and they're paid. Another family member does something else for the campaign and they're paid. Uh, I guess it's legal. But it sure, it seems a bit unethical. I mean, it just does. When a congressman um, hires a lot of work done by family members and, and doesn't pay them personally, I mean, if his money pay with what he wants to and whoever he wants to, but campaign contributions uh, being used to pay family members to do campaign tasks and chores, sure, uh, it just smells bad. Holy moly, you're talking about that Johnsonville golf course. Have you guys seen that new soccer complex in Florence? I I was there all, all night last night. I, as the grass was growing, I just seen the revenue coming in because it's being used so much. Oh, what a wonderful place. The revenue, the grass, the soccer complex. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if it's underutilized or, or utilized at all. I have no idea. I do know the investment the city and county made, uh, the the foundation. We got a charitable foundation here in town that made a large contribution toward the soccer facility. And normally, sports tourism is is uh, I don't know. It's evaluated based on heads and beds. You know what sort of revenue. Uh, in other words, you would check with some of the hotel owners, some of the restaurant owners, find out. Hey, we had a forty team soccer tournament. You know, what were your numbers like compared to when we don't have a 40-team soccer tournament? The restaurants would be the same thing. I've always believed, uh, this is, goes back to my time on council, I mean, if we're going to sell some of these amenities as quality of life, and there's no question that they're not going to add value to the bottom line. I mean, there, there's no way around this. Um, but what is the ancillary benefit? 
what are the extracurricular valuations that you could bring into focus? Uh, and, and I think the best way to do that is to look at some of the tourism revenue, some of the hospitality revenue. Um, when, when a soccer team comes to Florence to play in a tournament, mom and dad or grandmother and grandfather may come. They get a hotel. They buy a meal. It's a very inexact science. But, but I have heard from a couple of others that we don't seem to be using the soccer facility as much as we should. I don't know that. I've never played a soccer match in my life. I, I don't know the rules to soccer. I do know that Ronaldo and Lionel Messi are really good soccer players, and Pele was kind of the, uh, the, the, uh, the, the global figure of soccer. That's all I know. But, but I've had some people express concern to me about the underutilization of the investment the taxpayers made and the charitable foundation in this soccer facility. We'll try to run down um, some evaluations about how much they believe it's, how much economic activity they believe it's led to. Good morning. I'm a longtime resident of the PD area, and uh, you were talking this morning about the golf course in Johnsonville. I think that's a huge waste of resources. It's another situation where we're taking monies from things that are more important, like recruiting industry, creating and keeping jobs here in the PD. Uh, and we're, we're putting money where it really doesn't make sense. Just like everyone's saying on the radio this morning, if the golf course was a good idea, it would probably still be a good uh, golf course, uh, but it's not. And we look at these situations where we're spending local federal tax dollars for community improvements, downtown development. I get some of that. We're doing it to attract industries, but some of that too, I believe, is being used for self-serving uh, purposes for small business owners, which uh, may or may not be the wisest and best use for state and federal dollars. There are too many other projects that are more important than golf courses for Johnsonville. And it's disappointing that we continue to see local politicians buy for those dollars and then allocate them to projects that really serve such a small percentage of people. Thanks to Ken Ard for bringing these things to our attention because, you know, he mentioned this early on in the process. And what sounds like a good idea to some kind of tells us on a local level, we have politicians too that have tunnel vision, just like the one in Washington, D.C. It's sad. Uh, the PD is better, the people here are better, and we deserve better. Uh, very well stated, well explained, very articulate the way he um, stated his case. Um, I did say early um, in the referendum's uh, process that I was concerned about the, the golf course. Um, you know, I could also be devil's advocate and say, uh, why do we need to have youth baseball fields? Or why do we need to have a city center? Why do we need to have any of these things? They're they're very um, extracurricular. Use that word a couple of times here, and they are. I mean, they're not the core function of government. You know that. I know that. Nobody would argue. Even the supporter of a golf course would not argue that it's a core function of government. Um, but we begin to open these doors, and we begin to head down these slippery slopes. And the next thing you're saying, well, we've got a soccer complex, and we've got six youth baseball fields. Why not a gymnasium? Okay, let's build a gymnasium. Well, we've got a gymnasium and six youth soccer fields and uh, and some baseball complexes. Why not a golf course? And that's where you always end up. And and I make no and I want to applaud Philip Lowe. I mean, I think he deserves a lot of credit for coming in here Friday morning and saying very candidly they're going to need more money. 
I mean, there, there, there's no question about this. Um, the number of people required to play golf in Johnsonville, South Carolina, to allow that course to be um, self-sustaining or even profitable is just somewhat of a, of a pod dream. It's not going to happen. Um, I stay, you know, I believe that. I've said that. Um, but, but the process was laid out. And for those that don't remember, um, the county held hearings in the several and different municipalities. The municipalities were afforded the opportunity to say what they thought was important to their communities and their towns. Johnsonville landed on a golf course. I think Pamplico wanted water lines and sewer lines. Um, that seems to be a core function of government. I think even the most conservative voice could say, yeah, let's improve the water. Uh, let's expand some of the coverage areas. Um, but Johnsonville, I mean, that's controversial. They knew it when they did it. Um, the, the, the burr in my saddle is this, that there are still some people saying that they're not going to need any more money. They will need more money. And I applaud Representative Lowe for basically um, confronting that sooner than potentially later. Uh, J.D. Vance is absolutely right. I've been saying this since this whole fiasco started. We've got a war on our southern border. We've got a tyrannical leftist regime decimating America. And they're worried about Ukraine. Look what they did to Afghanistan. M maybe his words should have been, uh, um, I'm more concerned about our own border. But uh, yeah, as long as we got this rotting bag of oatmeal, this cadaver in charge up there, we don't stand a chance. The sooner we get these leftists out, the better. Thank you. Have a good day. Article 4, Section 4. I'll read it again. The United States shall guarantee to every state in this union a Republican form of government and shall protect each of them against invasion. You tell me when something becomes an invasion. It's, 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 to me, it's complicated to argue. Well, I mean, it's impossible to argue that we don't have an invasion on our southern border. You know what gotaways are? I mean, gotaways are those who breach the border without being stopped or identified by Border Patrol or other authorities. You know how many gotaways Border Patrol believes are making their way across the border every month in America today? 30,000. I mean, they believe that they every estimate. Day? No, a month. month. 30,000 a month. So that's 1,000 a day. What we're calling gotaways. We, we've got some accounting. I mean, we've got the number 1.7 million illegal immigrants were intercepted crossing the border. I read that last night. 2.6 million, uh, predominantly young, predominantly male um, in this fiscal year alone. But, but the gotaways is a number we'll never know. And they're estimating that about 30,000 every single month. Uh, are they cartel members? Are they child molesters? Are they drug traffickers? Are they sex offenders? We don't know who they are. We don't have any idea, but we know where they are. They're in America. They're now our neighbors. They, they may be in Florence. They may be in Sumter. They may be in Columbia. We don't have any idea. But, but the gotaways are about a 30,000 excuse me, 30,000 uh, people per month making their way into the border that have never been stopped, never been identified by Border Patrol. Um, and once again, who are they and what are they here doing? Maybe they're going to church every Sunday. Maybe they're trying to get a job. At, at, you know, at the, the, maybe they're trying to be enormous contributors to the orderly way of which we um, conduct our society. Uh, maybe they're not. They, they have no respect for the law because if they would, they wouldn't do it this way. I mean, if they were respectful of the American way of life, the American, the American way of immigration, they would come in as, as I mean, we allow people to immigrate. 
I mean, we're still land of the free, home of the brave. Well, we allow anybody to, to, to become an American citizen if you meet the requirements, but that we're a nation of laws. And there are laws required to follow if you're going to be a citizen of this country. So, yeah, when you look at America first, and this would be a kind of a typical political issue, securing the southern border. I mean, I think every America first candidate worth his weight needs to say emphatically, I care about the people of Ukraine. I care about the people of Texas a lot more. And I'm more interested in securing our southern border than I am uh, the Russia-Ukraine border and who owns what. You've been listening to the Wake Up Carolina Winer Line, brought to you by Delta Building Systems. You got something you want to whine about? Call anytime, 803-720-5260. It's the official and the original Wake Up Carolina Winer Line. Hey, it's Tony Zach with Miss. You know, this is probably one of the most concerning things that nobody's talking about. The European Union is beginning to discuss uh, internally. Uh, between the European Union member nations, uh, this Russian oil embargo, rather than a ban on gas, Putin has never been as wealthy as he is today. Uh, it's just close to a billion bucks a day that other countries, India and China in particular, have increased the number of barrels of oil they're buying from from Russia. Um, we know Americans aren't buying Russian oil any longer. Um, but But the genius in all of this is probably Vladimir Putin. I mean, maybe he's a butcher. Uh, he's obviously a dictator. He's a communist uh, dictator. But I'm telling you, he's going to be well-funded as long as people are buying his oil. And when, when, Putin's, uh, when, when Putin invaded Ukraine, you've you got to believe he accounted for an increase in and a volatility in the energy sector and the oil market. So, so when, when Putin, I mean, he, people think he's a moron. I, I'll assure you he's not a moron. He's probably a really, really bright and savvy guy. So Putin invades Ukraine. That upsets the global energy markets. Oil goes in excess of $100 a barrel. He supplies about 50% of the European Union with their uh, oil and natural gas. So they're, you know, they're, they're sending military weapons to Ukraine, but they're sending a bunch of money to Russia. I mean, in exchange for you know, the, the energy that they choose to not produce because of their infatuation as Americans with this new green um, deal and they believe or there's some reason to suspect that a lot of the rationale is let's wait till after the French election and after the French election um, and Macron they hope wins because he's more liberal than uh, La Pan, uh then we can execute that but here, here's JP Morgan yesterday the Wall Street Journal said that if the European Union were to do this after the election after the French election and, and I'm speculating that's what they're waiting on Everything's political. Um, oil would probably go to $185 a barrel. That means gas at about $525 a gallon, somewhere thereabout. Mm-hmm. So that would be a complete and total shock. And once again, India and China have negotiated that they'll buy all the oil that Putin produces. So whether the European Union buys it or not, the oil is going on the market. And, and Putin has made it clear that he's willing to cut a deal with India and China. But he's willing to sell the oil. Um, their, their extraction costs is somewhere around 18 to 20 dollars a barrel. So if he sells it for 30 bucks a barrel, he's still making money. I mean, he's not going to do that if the market says 185 dollars a barrel. But there's another reason to be real concerned because once again, uh, the Western world has co- convinced itself that domestic energy production is more dangerous 
than the unknowns of climate change and we're dependent on russia to provide a certain percentage of the energy and yeah putin's uh, obliterating ukraine we're kind of sort of paying for it the western world is for that matter take a break back in a minute 